Invest in your leadership and business skills at AUA 2023 with the new AUA Institute for Leadership and Business Track. Join the Institute at the AUA annual meeting in Chicago for an opportunity to grow your leadership and business skills. The new ILB track features seven courses, offering a combined total of 16 hours of programming that will enhance your business acumen, activate your interest in business and finance, and inspire you to become a leader in your practice and the field. To accommodate the robust schedule of AUA 2023, each of the seven live courses will be recorded for access on demand after annual meeting. Resident discounts are available. Visit auanet.org forward slash AUA2023 to learn more and add the ILB track to your registration. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Okay, no problem. I'll get started. Um, so uh, thank you very much for coming to this course. Um, this is, uh, our goal really today is to provide you with um, a basis of how to manage uh, priapism in general. Uh, and we're going to go over a, a number of different cases as well as the different forms of priapism. Um, as you may have heard, uh, we recently um, updated, uh, or excuse me, really gave a new complete guideline on management of priapism. Um, and, and, and that was a joint uh, um, a guideline with the SMSNA, so the AUA with the SMSNA. Um, do I point towards where? Up oh, there, okay. These are my disclosures. Um, none are related to the guideline topic. Uh, this panel was formed in 2018. Um, is, as everybody knows, the world that we lived in in 2018 was very different than the world we lived in just about 18 months later. So. Um, the reason why you're, you're, you're seeing uh, both last year and this year, there's actually two um, guideline um, uh, documents, uh, one, two publications. One was on acute ischemic priapism um, with uh, surgical management, uh, medical management, and then now we're coming with a second publication, which is non-ischemic priapism and management of recurrent um, uh, ischemic priapism and, um, and, and sickle cell. So it, it spanned a long period of time because of uh, uh, things related to the pandemic. So uh, this is the uh, panel. Um, as you can see, um, this panel was a, a group of a very diverse group of uh, doctors, uh, statisticians, PhD scientists. Uh, we purposely had someone um, on, the, on the guideline panel that worked in the emergency room. So we had an emergency room physician. We had a hematologist that uh, helped us with the sickle cell portion. We had a methodologist and um, our project manager, Layla, who was uh, vital to this. Uh, Yafi was um, on the panel uh, with us, um, uh, and uh, Nelson Bennett was the uh, vice chair of this, um, of this guideline. Uh, as I was po pointing out earlier, uh, previous guideline was in 2003. So um, we're talking about uh, 20 years of, uh, of, of innovations, ways that, ways that we uh, manage priapism differently. So the AUA said, listen, we really need to um, uh, uh, really bring this into the year uh, 2022. Um, as you can see here, you know, uh, so actually Greg was the only person on the guideline, Greg Bajic, that was on the previous. Uh, this is the scope of the guideline and our two index patients, um, which I will uh, dis which we'll use kind of throughout uh, this um, uh, course. 
Uh, what you're going to see from us, my job is the introduction, is just to provide you with a basis to understand a lot of the talks that you're going to hear from my colleagues and some of the case presentations. So we'll intertwine some of these topics throughout. Um, the current guideline assesses acute ischemic as well as non-ischemic priapism, uh, current ischemic priapism, and priapism in sickle cell disease. The index patient is an adult male presenting with a prolonged erection lasting greater than four hours, or an adult male presenting with a prolonged erection less than four hours that may recur over time. So this is the recurrent ischemic priapism where, um, where you see these stuttering events. So I will make the point now, we, we term recurrent ischemic priapism is the same thing as what we have termed over the many years that we've been doing this is stuttering priapism. But we, we've get, given it a more accurate way of, uh, of delineating who that patient is. The definition of acute ischemic priapism, the same as we all know, this is a low flow state, non-arterial, non-sexual persistent erection, characterized by little or no cavernous blood flow and abnormal cavernous blood gases. The corporate cavernosal are fully rigid bilaterally and tender to the palpitation. Important, tender to the palpitation, rigid bilaterally, and if you examine the cruce or the perineum, you'll also feel a rigidity. And the patient typically reports pain. Contrast that with non-ischemic priapism, which is an arterial high flow state, a persistent erection that may last hours to weeks and is frequently recurrent. Erections are nearly always non-painful, and the cavernous blood gas is very different um, uh, compared to the ischemic. You'll see arter uh, an arterial uh, blood. Now, this was something that the guideline is very different, and we make the point throughout that in contrast to acute ischemic priapism, the non-ischemic variant is not considered a medical emergency. So, for example, if you see a patient in the emergency room at 2 a.m. that you get called for and you have to go see that has, you've been able to define as non-ischemic priapism, you do not have to do anything. You can literally tell that individual, why don't you follow up with me next week in clinic, we'll talk about wh where to go from there, okay? What are the additions from the previous guidelines? So the new additions to this guideline include defining roles of imaging, including ultrasound, CT, MRI, and the diagnosis of acute ischemic priapism and non-ischemic priapism. And my job later will sort of point out some of those uh, differences there. Adjuvant laboratory tests, early involvement of the urologist, urologist when, when patients present to the emergency room, discussion of conservative therapies for non-ischemic priapism, enhanced data on patient counseling, specific recommendations on intracavernosal phenylephrine, and novel surgical techniques, including tunneling and early penile prosthesis placement in acute ischemic priapism. And we're going to hear a lot of talks around that, and I'm sure there will be lots of questions. That's why we, we want you to ask questions. This is very much an open discussion. So going into some of the statements. In patients presenting with priapism, clinicians should complete a medical, sexual, and surgical history and perform a physical examination, including the genitalia and perineum. In the majority of cases of priapism, the differentiation of acute versus non-acute, um, excuse me, non-ischemic priapism may be made with just a history and physical exam. This is the table, and once again, in the document, I think probably everybody in this room knows exactly what, uh, what, what you know, this has been in Campbell's uh, for, for decades, um, not really anything different. As you, as you can see, non-ischemic priapism typically associated or can be associated with perineal trauma, um, chronic, um, uh, well-tolerated tumescence without full rigidity and no pain. Contrast that with ischemic full rigidity, painful, associated with intracavernosal vasoactive drug injections. Now, this was something that was uh, up for uh, debate, and we had a lot of discussion around getting a corporal blood gas. 
previous guidelines said you get a corporal blood gas in everyone, but in reality, do you really need to? So clinicians should obtain a corporal blood gas at the initial presentation of priapism. So this is different. This is a clinical principle. Blood gas testing is the most common diagnostic method of distinguishing acute versus non-acute. However, there are certain clinical situations where blood gas may be omitted. Those are patients that you know are, are it's a non-ischemic, uh, excuse me, an ischemic event induced by in-office or home ICI, cases of recurrent ischemic priapism where they're coming in every week or every month to the emergency room, and the diagnosis is clear by history and exam. So you actually are covered where you don't actually necessarily have to get a blood gas all the time. I would recommend that you do. However, it is, uh, it's, it's a, it, the possibility is you can do it by just AGP. Clinicians should counsel all patients with persistent ischemic priapism that there's a chance of erectile dysfunction. And this is important, we all know that. However, in, we now state that if it's greater than 36 hours, the likelihood of erection recovery is low. This is a paper that was published by Nelson Bennett, my, my vice chair, as well as John Mulhall, who was also on the um, panel, looking at the return of functional erections dependent on the duration of priapism. Now, we are all aware of like how to define this. It's, there's some ambiguity into how you define it, but in reality, they show here, if it's greater than 36 hours, none of these patients had return of erections. The literature in the systematic review actually um, support this, and there was only one paper in the literature that showed that there was a small chance of erection recovery outside of 36 hours, and that percentage ranged between 10 to 20%. However, it didn't have validated questionnaires, so I would argue probably not the best uh, level of evidence. So I think what we're now, you're gonna hear from my colleagues, 36 hours is an important time point where you may decide to do something different than what you are typically used to doing. In a patient with diagnosed acute ischemic priapism, conservative therapies, observation, oral medications, cold compresses, exercise, are unlikely to be successful and should not delay definitive therapy. What is this, why do we put this in here? Because we don't think it's that emergency room physicians should give them you know, some type of um, uh, oral medication, which we know does not work, ask them to exercise and delay definitive treatment. Clinicians should manage acute ischemic priapism with intracavernosal phenylephrine and corporal aspiration with or without irrigation as the first-line therapy prior to operative interventions. Once again, we make the point, if it's greater than 36 hours, um, it's unlikely that, that this approach will work. This is data that shows that the shunt surgery is, um, that uh, there's greater resolution rates with combination therapy of aspiration, irrigation, and intracravenosal sympathomimetics, which is phenylephrine, compared to sympathomimetics alone. You can see here in a number of studies that there is less shunt surgery in patients that underwent both aspiration and intracravenosal injection of phenylephrine than, than just phenylephrine alone. We make the point that you aspirate until you have old, the old dark blood, which is on my far left, I guess your, your left as well, so when you are able to get um, red oxygenated blood, you then start your phenylephrine injections. Phenylephrine is, is gonna bind to the alpha receptor uh, more uh, avidly in um, oxygenated state. Recurrent ischemic priapism, otherwise known as stuttering, signifies a recurrent subtype of acute ischemic priapism where unwanted painful erections occur repeatedly with intervening periods of detumescence. For the purpose of this guideline, recurrent ischemic priapism is narrowly defined as being a condition in which a patient experiences recurrent ischemic episodes with or without meeting the previous criteria of four hours. 
Management of this condition requires treatment of acute episodes and focuses on future prevention and mitigation of acute ischemic events necessitating surgical management. Differentiating the differentiating factor between ischemic priapism and other recurrent priapism-like conditions is required of uh, is, is the requirement of confirmed ischemia. A patient with sickle cell disease and prior episodes of ischemic priapism who re experienced re um, recurrent painful episodes of prolonged erections would be considered as having recurrent ischemic priapism. A patient with persistent nocturnal painful erections, um, which have neither have been shown to be ischemia, do not fit this definition. So the condition of sleep-related painful erections, undesired prolonged erections, and recurrent non-ischemic priapism does not uh, uh, fit this criteria because none of these conditions are associated with ischemia of the uh, corpora. Guideline statement, clinicians should inform patients with recurrent ischemic priapism that optimal strategies to prevent subsequent episodes are unknown. We had a gentleman come up here earlier and say, well, how would you treat stuttering priapism? Well, in reality, the best level of evidence for this is grade C. So this is a conditional recommendation. We don't know what works. This is a list of the things that have been tested. Baclofen, which is thought to work for neurogenic-associated uh, recurrent ischemic priapism, dutasteride, PD-5 inhibitors, ketoconazole, which is the most common, uh, I would say, pseudoephedrine, hormonal agents, aspirin. None of these um, have really um, uh, shown to be uh, very effective. Clinicians should inform patients with a recurrent ischemic priapism that hormonal regulators may impair fertility and sexual function. I'm sure you all have been um, uh, seeing patients, young men, with ac uh, acute ischemic priapism and, rec and recurrent ischemic priapism that come in and, and you, get them, you give them an anti-hormonal agent, right? You give them, you put them on Lupron, you put them on biclutamide, you put them on whatever it may be to stop their erections. But if you do that, they're gonna have uh, sexual side effects as well as infertility. And patients with hematologic and oncological disorders such as sickle cell disease or uh, CML, clinicians should not delay the standard management of acute ischemic priapism for disease-specific systemic in interventions. Said a different way, this is a compartment syndrome and you have to relieve the compartment syndrome, not the underlying disease. Patients with sickle cell disease um, should not delay treatment. And in, in reality, clinicians should not use exchange transfusions as the primary treatment in patients with acute ischemic priapism associated with sickle cell disease. This has been out there in the literature that this is the way you should manage acute ischemic events in sickle cell patients. However, the data does not support this, and therefore, um, uh, we do not recommend it. So in summary, the new guidelines provide the best level of evidence to advise practicing urologists and emergency room physicians on the management of both acute ischemic and non-ischemic priapism, as well as recurrent ischemic priapism. And this course will provide each participant with a common priapism scenario we encounter in clinical practice. And our job here is to sort of use this as these, these first guidelines to be the basis for um, a discussion of case-related um, uh, case, cases that we'll present. So that's our introduction. Um, I think, uh, do you want to say something? I'm sorry, Martin. Good. Okay. Any questions that that I'm that may be outstanding at this point before we move into the next session? I'll stay up here and do uh, talk about imaging. So, can you go to my um, the imaging um, presentation, please? <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Um, 
so these are my disclosures. Like I said, nothing's related. So the outline of this talk, this is not a very long talk because there's really only kind of three scenarios that we, that, that where imaging may or may not be effective that you would need to use in your clinical practice. So I'm going to do my best to identify and, and tell you um, what we found in our systematic review is the best approach. So um, this outline, by way of outline, we're going to discuss the role of imaging, both ultrasound, CT scan and MRI in the management of both non-ischemic and acute ischemic priapism. So um, I kind of borrowed this from another case that's gonna, uh, that we're going to hear about um, uh, later, but, um, but it's, it's just to make the point. This is a, a very, I'm sure you've seen this patient in the emergency room. Every urologist has seen this patient in the emergency room. You get a call and they say a 41-year-old man presents with prolonged priapism for 48 hours, and this is coming from the emergency room doc. That's all you know. With little to no pain, but significant engorgement of the corporate cavernosa bilaterally. Obviously, we as urologists are going to have a lot of questions to ask. You ask that emergency room physician or the resident that's calling you or the PA, and they say, I don't know, doc, I don't, this, is a, this is all I know. Come in and see this patient, okay? Obviously, a, a, a history and physical should focus on, in this patient, their past medical history, or do they have some type of hematological dyscrasia? Do they have a history of ICI therapy for ED? Do, have they had any um, a recent history of uh, injury to the penis, to the perineum? Um, and uh, do they have uh, any history of these events happening? So clearly something's going on. So clinicians may utilize penile duplex Doppler ultrasound when the diagnosis of acute ischemic versus non-ischemic priapism is indeterminate. So we make the point in the guideline that imaging should not be incorporated to the acute evaluation and management of priapism. So in that previous patient that I, that I, that I uh, just told you about, that they, you never elicited a history of trauma, but, and you never elicited a history of ICI therapy. And you get a blood gas, and that blood gas is equivocal, right? It's, it's not completely ischemic. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't show um, a high flow state or a, or a low flow state. It's equivocal. So what are you going to do in this situation? The poor historian, uh, your concern. Well, imaging may be utilized in less clearly delineated cases to differentiate between acute ischemic and non-ischemic. In the non-acute setting, a penile duplex Doppler ultrasound may identify anatomical abnormalities such as a cavernous artery fistula, a pseudoaneurysm, and men who have already uh, had the diagnosis of non-ischemic priapism. In this patient with a poor historian, you can get a, a, a Doppler. Um, in reality, you're probably not going to need to, right? We all know that. But there are these sometimes these scenarios where you actually think it's non-ischemic. You can't do document it. Um, however, you think that's what it is. Ultrasound's a perfect option there because if you're able to identify a fistula or a pseudoaneurysm or whatnot, uh, in particular fistula, you can actually manage that conservatively and, and tell that patient that we really don't need to do anything at this time and talk about uh, conservative management. An MRI in this setting, is there is no indication for that, none uh, in this patient. So when you think about acute ischemic priapism as being a urological emergency, the patient I just told you about is not an emergency, unlikely, doesn't have a lot of pain, and you document that it's not completely ischemic, it's not, it's not completely non-ischemic, I would get an ultrasound and consider conservative treatment. If you have a patient who is, um, has acute ischemic priapism, you, what you're going to do is you're, it's your clinical judgment here. You know, you're going to visualize the blood from the corporal aspirate. If it's dark, the blood gas suggests that. 
you can consider getting a duplex Doppler ultrasound, but completely not necessary. And an MRI plays no role. Now, as it relates to non-ischemic priapism, and the patient with diagnosed non-ischemic priapism, so that you know they have non-ischemic priapism, the clinician should, should consider penile duplex Doppler ultrasound for assessment of fistula location and size. I, I will tell you this, our, our opinion here is, and this is an expert opinion, is that you are only doing this for that patient when you are considering some type of intervention. What is that intervention? It may be some type of medication. It may be um, embolization. But it's necessary to document the size and location. The, when, you do, when, when your ultrasonographer does the ultrasound, it has to be of the phallus of the penis as well as of the perineum. It uh, can be performed in a non-urgent fashion because remember, ischemia is what causes problems, not, not non-ischemia. You want to identify the artery fistula, locate any pseudoaneurysms, and expect normal to high velocities in the, uh, in the cavernous arteries. Prior to intervention, the urologist and radiologist should discuss the size, the location, um, and the uh, choice of vascular access. So this is the part where, where we make the point that if, if uh, a urologist um, with experienced ultrasound uh, and radiologist with experienced ultrasound should be doing this, not, not at 2 a.m. once again in the emergency room where they, where they pull out an ultrasound that they're using for their fast, for their abdomen to sort of look for a fistula, right? This is where you schedule them for an appointment to come and see you. Um, you should be an experienced urologist and ultrasonographer. If the fistula cannot be determined by ultrasound, and there's a strong clinical and laboratory evidence of high flow state, then a CT angi angiogram, which I think maybe, at least in my practice, I've had a lot of patients that are referred over to us at a tertiary center that have gotten a CT angio looking for it. Well, that wouldn't be your first diagnostic test of choice. I will tell you, there is, I've seen some really nice studies, you know, never really been published, presented, where CT angios can be used. But it's really a, um, a, the interventional radiologist doing um, percutaneous angi angiography to identify the fistula. So that's non-ischemic priapism. When the radiographer identifies the fistula, then you're going to go on to embolization. And I'm not going to talk about that because we'll talk about that in additional um, uh, cases. Moving over to ischemic priapism. A 58-year-old man with ED using intracavernosal injection had an acute episode of ischemic priapism who underwent distal shunning, shunting at an outside hospital and now has persistent pain and erection. The transferring physician recommends additional surgery. How many times has my panel members gotten this phone call? I mean, we work at tertiary centers. Understandably, the last thing you wanted to be doing in the community is be doing multiple shunt surgeries. Give, give the tertiary center a call, and the first thing that I, when I receive this call is obviously, yes, we will take the patient, happy to take care of them, but in my mind, I'm not thinking additional surgery here at all. So in acute ischemic priapism in patients with persistent erection following shunting, the clinician, the clinician should perform a corporal blood gas or a colored duplex Doppler ultrasound prior to repeat surgical intervention to determine cavernous oxygenization or arterial inflow. What you are doing, in, the, in my practice, that patient is coming over and the first thing I'm doing is getting a blood gas. It's going to show a mixed picture, typically. And then I am getting an ultrasound to look for arterial flow. If you see arterial flow, any arterial flow, you do nothing because that patient is in a hyperemic state. They're just hyperemic. They've just got reestablishation of flow. They're still going to have a partial erection and probably some pain but the ischemic event is gone. 
and essentially the surgeries that you've done is, um, has been successful or has done its job. Remember, you want to reestablish um, uh, oxygenated blood. So if you show arterial flow, then you can manage that patient conservatively. Clinician must perform a confirmatory test to assess penile hemodynamic characteristics and extent of necrosis fibrosis and should not base further surgical decisions on exam alone. So that phone call I got from whoever says, this guy's erect, he's in pain, he needs more surgery. The point here is, is that you need to do something else. In my practice, it's an ultrasound. Um, we'll talk about MRI in a second. So in the UK, uh, our colleagues in uh, the NHS and the National Health Service have a very different way of managing this. All of these patients are sent over to a tertiary center, and they're all sent for, for management. And they really push early surgical intervention with placement of a penile prosthesis. And what we can say about MRI in this setting is it won't necessarily show establishment of reflow of arterial oxygenated blood, but what it could show for that patient who has an who's had an erection for greater than 36 hours, multiple surgeries, is that the, it could show using um, T2-weighted MRI imaging with contrast, it could show um, extensive smooth muscle necrosis and thrombosis. So the point here is some people use MRI to show that the, that the smooth muscle is, is, um, is necrosed, it's atrophied, and therefore that patient is going to have ED and, and we should be considering something else. This would be the only time you would use MRI in your practice. So in summary, colored duplex Doppler ultrasound of the penis and perineum can be used in the initial management of priapism and in the post-operative period following shunt surgery to determine reperfusion versus no flow state of the penis. MRI can be used prior to consideration of placement of a penile prosthesis in patients who, who, where there is a question of corporal muscle viability. And once again, there is good evidence to show that MRI does that. Um, I, will, I will make the argument that, that you probably um, should, and then we'll talk about this once again in, in another case, but uh, since I've brought it up, um, early placement of penile prosthesis, should, you should strongly consider sending this to, um, you know, sort of a specialist uh, to do that because it, it, there is some, um, some, some uh, things that, that you do have to know and experience there. And actually, you're going to hear about some of the tips uh, when doing that. So um, that is my uh, uh, presentation on imaging. Those sort of three types of scenarios I just showed you really highlight the changes and how we uh, recommend imaging uh, for priapism. I'm happy to answer any questions right now if you may have it. All right. Yes, sir. Coming from a hospital, in, is this on? Yes, it is. Yeah, um, in Los Angeles where we have a, a, a good number of sicklers. Um, yeah. Am I to understand that in a known sickler, an episode of priapism is not to be considered a manifestation of the sickling? It's just coincidental, meaning should we not, while we're taking care of the compartment syndrome, alert the hematologist or the pediatric hematologist sometimes that takes care of these patients? Uh, so it's a, it's a great question, and what I will tell you is that if the patient has manifestations of their sickle cell disease, like a crisis where they're having um, a joint pain, they're lysine, they've got pulmonary uh, uh, complications, pneumatitis, and, and other sickle manifestations, then yes. Otherwise, no. You manage the compartment syndrome. There's no evidence to, to uh, suggest that exchange transfusion will be effective. And actually, there's evidence that shows that it's detrimental. 
but it's important that you document that they don't have any other manifestations of sickle cell, right? And to other answer your question, priapism associated with sickle cell is not a just sickling in the blood sticking in the compartment. That's, that's an old Hinman actually was the first to, to sort of document that in 1950s, 60s, okay? We now know that there's a molecular basis to it which is related to a number of factors which if you want I can tell you about it but it's probably beyond the scope of this course. Yes, sir. Very nice presentation. I'm Alex from Brazil. Uh, about the dilution that you use the phenylephrine, can you I think say we're going to touch base on that. So and if you wouldn't mind, well, I won't answer that because you, we're actually going to talk about that. And generally, sometimes we don't have phenylephrine and sometimes we yeah. need to use adrenaline. How you yeah, think about so it? Uh, remember this is a guideline for, for the um, North America. Uh, it, we actually uh, recommend against that because of the systemic side effects. And we recommend for phenylephrine because it has uh, less um, systemic spillover and whatnot. Uh, we do, and I'll, I'll sort of say this, I, I know Jay's gonna talk about it, but you should put a patient on monitoring when you're doing, using any of these um, agents. But, but we do not recommend that, once again, because, it's because of the, the additional systemic side effects. So, sorry. Um, but I do understand that your, other countries use that, and, and that's fine. Very good. By the way, I just wanted to uh, also clarify the structure of this course. So, so the first part, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the, um, the updates and the guidelines that are different. And then we're going to uh, talk about the updates and the guidelines that we think perhaps could have been more, if that makes sense. There's sort of our personal quirks that we do. Uh, that we see that perhaps they may have been useful additions uh, in the future or things that just aren't as well known as they could be. Can I have my uh, slides up? Ah, that's the right one, you got it. Now I got this one right here. Okay, uh, this is my disclosures. And okay, so again, our index patient is a 44-year-old gentleman who comes to the, uh, the uh, ER with a 60-hour erection. Uh, the labs, as uh, discussed in the imaging findings, uh, as discussed by Dr. Vivalacqua, confirm priapism, acute ischemic priapism. Uh, the ER attending has attempted aspiration irrigation for an hour, and then your lowly uh, uh, suffering urology resident has then injected phenylephrine for about two hours uh, and is getting quite uh, miserable. So uh, as far as updates to the guidelines that are different from previous, uh, clinicians should perform a distal corporate glandular shunt with or without tunneling in patients with acute ischemic priapism uh, who have failed pharmacologic in intercavernosal reversal and aspiration with or without irrigation, right? So this is uh, important to sort of indicate here that the, they want to make very clear with these guideline statements that shunts are not first-line therapies and that non-surgical management should and really must come first. The decision to initiate surgery requires failure of non-surgical management, uh, and the decision to end non-surgical management really depends on the priapism duration, which as we talked about uh, uh, can be uh, distinctly linked to uh, certain circumstances afterwards. When non-surgical management fails, shunts should be considered. The goals of shunt surgery are to relieve the pain of the compartment syndrome, uh, to preserve quality of life in patients, and really to try and reoxygenate this uh, erectile tissue, preventing fibrosis and uh, preventing or preserving erectile function as much as possible. So percutaneous penile shunts, very commonly done. There are many advantages to these. They obviously can be performed outside of the operating room. They can be performed under local anesthesia, and technically they are relatively simple. Uh, however, they are ineffective in many cases, and we will talk about that in a second. 
There's also a reduced patient and surgeon safety margin. Obviously, if you're trying to do this in the ER at the bedside, uh, you know, there certainly are potential for needle stick injuries and other sort of issues. Uh, and there are post-procedural complications, which we will talk about as well. These are the variety of uh, percutaneous penile shunts that are available and have been discussed in the literature. There are quite a few, but there really are a couple uh, that have been primarily discussed. It's the Ebbinghaus shunt, uh, where there is a, a relatively significant failure rate of uh, achieving detumescence, and of course the winter shunt, uh, which with has a wide variety in the studies uh, in the literature of rates of failure to achieve detumescence. The optimal shunt technique has not been defined really because we have not ever had a head-to-head -head study comparing shunt techniques. Uh, so there really is no clear method of what is best. Um, it really is obviously personal surgeon preference based on what you have trained in the past uh, and what you're comfortable doing. So this is, of course, a picture of a percutaneous penile shunt about to happen. There is a very large, it looks like an 11, about to go uh, into this gentleman's uh, uh, glands right there. Now, surgical penile shunts, these are folks that are taken to the operating room. Uh, there is much more opportunity for greater control, particularly in high-risk patients. Certainly where I trained, uh, we had a, a relatively high rate of HIV in the ER, uh, and so as, as little blood sort of uh, spattering about would be uh, very helpful. Uh, many other additional maneuvers can be performed, which we'll talk about uh, in a second here, and there's a higher likelihood of success uh, in prolonged priapism cases in doing a surgical shunt than in doing a bedside uh, uh, winter or Ebbinghaus shunt. There are disadvantages, of course. When you take somebody to the OR for a, a shunt like this, you are pretty much going to guarantee them erectile dysfunction in some form or another. And there is a significant risk of post-surgical complications, particularly with the use of adjunct maneuvers, which we'll discuss in a minute. So the Algarab shunt, really the most commonly done shunt. Uh, this is dissection and removal of a tip of the corporate cavernosa to facilitate uh, drainage of blood from the corporate cavernosa. This dissection is carried down through the glands to the bulging tips of the corporal bodies, which are pretty easily identifiable. And then you throw a suture and you take out an ellipse. Uh, typically, I will use a pretty uh, heavy-duty suture to really be able to pull on, on the tissue and keep it up so it doesn't retract in case I'm going to be doing some tunneling. Uh, the dark old blood is then drained out of the corporate cavernosa. Uh, and in this, of course, the literature shows that there is a 27% failure to achieve detumescence here as well, which is not dissimilar from the other shunts, but of course, the patient populations are very different. These are some relative uh, representative pictures, excuse me, of, uh, of uh, the Algarab shunt. So this is the glands, which has been opened up, exposing the tips of the corporal bodies, which have then been, uh, uh, had suture thrown through the end of them. And then the excision of a very uh, distinct chunk of the two tips of the corpora, uh, and then milking the blood out of there, and then closure uh, in multiple layers. Uh, usually, obviously, you're not closing the tips of the corpora, but you are going to close uh, the glands tissue uh, over that uh, as well. The bleeding from this object can be profound. What I have found in my cases is that you know patients will bleed literally up until the, the last monocryl goes into the glands, um, and that's okay. I mean, you're trying to get some of that blood out of there, and you're trying to get that blood to be shunted to a different direction, uh, but it, it certainly can be uh, stressful and confusing if it's the, the first time you're doing it. Okay, so in patients with acute ischemic priapism who failed a distal corporate glandular shunt alone, clinicians should consider corporal tunneling. So this is one of the many updates uh, that are very different from the original uh, uh, guidelines that were published in 2003 and then updated in 2010. This is a distinct uh, set of literature that very uh, much comes out of uh, Hopkins, Dr. Burnett's work, Dr. Bivalacqua's work. Uh, uh, tunneling is very, very useful. Corporal tunneling uh, can, uh, so the, the, the rationale behind it is that there is significant edema and necrosis of this tissue inside the corporal bodies and that the distal shunts, like an algorab, are really not going to adequately drain the proximal corpora all that well. 
however, proximal venous shunts do not drain the distal corpora very well. So what you're really trying to do uh, is reestablish corporal blood circulation by doing a shunt and tunneling, and that requires a large shunt and a distinct intercavernous tunnel that's going to get blood to circulate back and forth. This can be performed with percutaneous shunts uh, outside of the operating room, uh, but obviously not, not super wise. Uh, you can do a T-shunt uh, where you do a, a, a the T-shunt as described earlier, uh, and then you take a urethral sound and push it down the, the corpora uh, bilaterally. You can do it unilaterally or bilaterally, uh, and you can do a T-shunt with or without tunneling, uh, depending on your preference. This study showed a mean duration of 81 hours of priapism, and many of the patients did achieve detumescence with tunneling. Uh, two required a second additional tunneling procedure as well, uh, and there were no change, no evidence of glands hypoesthesia or other concerns afterwards. So a, a small series, obviously, but a series that, that really showed that this was a potentially a useful uh, adjunct maneuver. Advantage of doing it with a T-shunt alone, obviously this can be done under local anesthesia uh, at the bedside. You really don't need to keep patients afterwards. You're not necessarily doing a particularly gruesome or aggressive procedure. Disadvantages, of course, uh, are that more complex shunting may be needed uh, and, you, uh, and you are delaying this by doing it under local anesthesia at the bedside uh, if you need to do it later on. And of course, uh, Dr. Burnett's corporal snake maneuver. So this is a patient who's definitely taken the operating room for this. Uh, you will excise the tips of the corpora and then uh, use a large Hagar dilator to get all the way down uh, to the proximal uh, corpora bilaterally. This can be performed with or without cavernosotomy, which I had to look up, by the way, because I had never used that word before. Uh, but that, in the study that was done by uh, Shirashi et al., uh, that was the excision of corporal tissue with forceps, which uh, was, you know, as weird as it sounds. Um, it is very useful as a salvage procedure, obviously, if other things have happened to these patients when they come to see you and you're now at a tertiary care facility and, and you have uh, run out of options, this is certainly a very useful procedure to uh, add in addition to the previous things that have gone on prior to your management. Uh, it is broadly effective for large durations of priapism, for, but of all kinds, really. It will work, you know, in, in a variety of different stages of when patients appear to you. There is highly successful rates of detumescence with the procedure. However, of course, it's not without complications, and some of those are represented in these pictures. We have, for example, a urethrocutaneous fistula, uh, which is pretty gnarly looking, and then uh, infection of the tissue as well, uh, and glands skin necrosis, which, of course, is something that keeps me up at night uh, in my nightmares. So, advantages and disadvantages of the corporal tunneling and the corporal snake maneuver. The advantages, you can really proceed to the snake, the snake maneuver if detumescence does not initially occur with a distal shunt alone, right? So you're already doing an algorab, you get the tips out, nothing really changes in the patient's uh, 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 you know, physical exam in the operating room. You can just take a Hagar dilator and go right down the corpora bilaterally. It does require general anesthesia. It's a pretty uh, uh, significant procedure. It requires observing the patient in the hospital afterwards. It is certainly more invasive, that is the point and there is a higher potential for complications as we just discussed. Last but not least, uh, many times uh, I have received phone calls either from my partners or from outside facilities uh, where, and I think uh, Trinity went over this one earlier, uh, we've, we've done the shunt, we've done you know, the T-shunt the, the with tunneling or we've done a, the Burnett snake maneuver and there's still some tumescence going on. We're not really clear what's, what's going on inside the penis. Uh, so. Oh, no, I'm sorry, this is, this is no, no, no I'm, I'm, I've skipped ahead of myself, I apologize. This is proximal shunting, and this is a very important part of the guideline uh, that was updated here. So proximal shunts, not 
are, they are historical anachronisms at this point. So clinicians should counsel patients that there is inadequate evidence to quantify the benefit of performing a proximal shunt of any kind in a patient with persistent acute ischemic priapism after distal shunting. I remember spending many, many hours in residency trying to remember all of these various shunts and remembering <laughs> which one was which and whose was whose and what uh, picture of some old guy's face goes associated with these, with these, uh, <laughs> these different shunts. I still don't remember them very well. Uh, but the quackle shunt is the cavernoso-spongiosal shunt. The sacker is two quackles back there bilaterally. The berry is the cavernoso-dorsal dorsal vein, and the gray hack are, is the cavernoso-saphenous vein. These, again, are, are historical procedures at this point. Um, I have not seen them done. I would be quite frightened to try to do these, uh, just for my own degree of difficulty. Okay, now last but not least, back to my original point. The patient has had the procedures that you've done to them. Uh, and, and there still is some tumescence, there still is a concern that this priapism is continuing, but you went right by the book and you followed the steps and you did the corporal snake. What, you know, what's going on with this guy's penis? So in an acute ischemic priapism patient with persistent erection following shunting, the clinician should perform corporal blood gas or colored duplex Doppler ultrasound prior to repeat surgical intervention to determine cavernous oxygenation or arterial inflow. This has happened in my, in my, uh, in my practice uh, in my facility where you know, they've taken a guy back twice in two days for this, but there really was no need because the internal tissue had a shunt going on it. So there was circulation of blood that was appropriate, uh, but unfortunately the patient had back-to-back -back procedures. So this is very, very important to distinguish what uh, is actually, if, if you're done or not. So in summary, the shunt choice at the surgeon's discretion following non-surgical failure. I tried a long time on Google Images, by the way. I spent a long time trying to find an image of priapism that I had not seen in lectures before. So this is the first one I could find that was, that was really useful. That guy's really got something going on there. Uh, no studies have directly compared priapism shunts and or tunneling. So there really is no evidence that one is better than the other. It's really at your discretion and your, your, your uh, capability. Modern surgical techniques, uh, certainly with the updated guidelines are for priapism management, are safe and effective. And significant surgical challenges, failures, and complications can occur. Um, and so we are there. Thank you very much. I'm going to then have Dr. Yaffe take over. Not to be no, no, it's Dr. Simhan, excuse me. And then, uh, again, the, there'll be fun stuff later. This is just to really go over the guidelines first. The fun stuff is going to be us uh, lobbing grenades <coughs> at the guidelines of the second part of the program. Thank you. All right, thank you. I, um, if we can have my slides up under the surgical, priapism surgical. No, I think um, for, for this course, I think a lot of us, when we were d debating and internally discussing how to present a priapism course, we thought it was very important, myself certainly, because I, I remember priapism uh, as a resident trainee into my fellowship and now as an attending, I feel that that's commonly uncommon you know, priapism in everyone's practice. And the, the variability in management, I think, makes it sometimes challenging to come together. And I think as Dr. Bivolacqua presented to the group, ultimately it, it ends up being sort of expert opinion that has guided a lot of the studies that then drive a lot of the data that we then present to you in terms of what we think should ultimately be happening. Can we have my slides sort of pulled up? You're working on it? Okay. So, so, um, so I think what, what I was going to do was present a talk on surgical management of priapism that goes beyond shunting. So you heard from Dr. Gross about shunts. For me, um, my area will be about penile implantation at the time of priapism. That, that, for me, at the beginning of my training and into my training would have been a completely foreign concept to put in a penile implant. 
in someone that has priapism or at least presenting through the emergency room. And again, I think Trinity had said this at the beginning that I think the Europeans have really studied this well and have shown really good data on in select patients how priapism um, um, can be treated effectively with the penile implant. The other thing I would say that I did not include in the talk, so I'll give it to you now as they're working on getting the slides up, is, is really uh, once a patient has had a shunt procedure done, the idea of placing an implant immediately following a shunt should not be done. Because, of course, there's a lot of pressure on the gland's penis from the actual penile implant, and the certainty of an extrusion through the distal shunt is almost a certainty. So, so really, when it gets to sort of the idea of shunting and penile implantation, we really should not be, we really should not be doing a penile implant in the immediate setting after a shunt has been placed. Um, the other, the other thing I would say about the quackle shunt, which was brought up earlier um, by Dr. Gross, um, and this is the corporospongiosal shunt that was described. And I, and I think, you know, so I've undertaken that in practice. And I think some of the challenge behind doing that in a lot of refractory priapism cases is the amount of spongiosal and corporal edema is so dramatic. Mm. The chances you enter into the urethra are actually very high. And so the subclinical and overt manifestations of urethrocorporal fistulas are what should lead every clinician in here to avoid doing those types of shunt procedures. Are we having trouble? Jay, the other problem with that too is, is you know, a lot of us who are managing uh, priapism are not uh, recon guys. Right. And so I, I, I'm terrified of the urethra uh, and, and, you know, really try to dodge it as much as I possibly can. So trying to perform a shunt in close proximity to that would really uh, give me a lot of agita in yeah. that regard. Can I uh, make a, I'll make a statement. So I was, uh, to this point, yeah. Jay. So I was visiting a professor at, um, at an institution after the guidelines came out and, and literally they said, to me, they said, how can you, you're so irresponsible to have a guideline that does not have a reconstructive urologist on there. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm like, there's, you know, I can name half of these people on this guideline are reconstructive urologists doing urethroplasties, doing, you know, lower urinary tract, maybe not upper tract, but, you know, and I mean, even myself. And they're like, well, if you had a reconstructive urologist that did a proximal shot, then it would work. And my point to them was, I said, then why don't you publish your data? And if you publish your data, then it could be in a systematic review that we've summarized, and then maybe we would change. But in reality, as you've heard, um, uh, it's, it's historical. And we even make the point there that you should not perform a proximal shunt, and we'll highlight why that's the case as, as we move through. Okay, so we're gonna switch a little bit up here, and so, so please uh, hold your horses for Dr. Uh, Simhan's talk about how to put an implant in in that circumstance. We will talk about uh, non-escapy priapism with Dr. Yaffe. Yep. Uh, hello, everybody, and uh, again, thanks, Marty, for putting this together. Uh, we're going to have to switch over just because PowerPoint is down, and somehow some slides are opening, some are some are not. So I'll be talking about non-ischemic priapism, uh, and I'm at the University of California, Irvine. Here are my disclosures. Uh, like Dr. Bivalacqua said, I was a uh, panel member of the AUA priapism guidelines, but I am not uh, thought not a uh, my presentation is not representative of the guidelines directly, um, as it is a, uh, there are some variations in the slides. 
Sorry, so again, this is gonna be a case-based presentation. So it is a 41-year-old man who presents with prolonged priapism for 48 hours following trauma and has no pain. So how are we gonna proceed with this guy? So obviously, as Dr. Bivolacqua presented uh, before, the most important thing in a, in, a, in a presentation of priapism is the history and the physical exam of a patient. This guy has no pain, there is a history of trauma, so this already starts putting some thoughts in our head about what the real cause is here. So the diagnosis of non-ischemic priapism, how do we diagnose it? So in patients presenting with priapism, clinicians should complete a medical sexual and surgical history and perform a physical exam, including the genitalia and the perineum. And in the majority of cases of priapism, the differentiation of acute versus non-ischemic uh, may be made using only the history and physical examination. And I bold history and physical examination because in most situations, this is gonna give you enough clues to know what's going on. So the definition of non-ischemic, so non-ischemic, also known as arterial or high-flow priapism, is a persistent erection that may last hours to weeks and is frequently recurrent. Erections are nearly always non-painful and cavernosal blood, flow, uh, blood gas measurements are consistent with arterial blood. In contrast to acute ischemic priapism, the non-ischemic variant is not considered a medical emergency. And the most important part in this entire slide is that it is con not considered a medical emergency. And this will allow you some flexibility in terms of treatment and in terms of how much you have to rush or not rush in terms of treating the patient. So uh, Dr. Bivalacqua showed this, but again, I'll show it again. And this is a really important table because if you really just look at this, you're most often gonna be able to tell if this patient is ischemic or non-ischemic. So in patients who are non-ischemic, they'll seldomly have a carpocarbonosal set that is fully rigid, penile pain, abnormal cavernous blood gas, blood abnormalities and hematologic malignancy, and recent intracavernous vasoactive drug injection. So the guy who's got a shot in the clinic while you're doing a duplex and comes back with an erection, clearly this guy is not non-ischemic and is more likely to be ischemic. What is usually present in non-ischemic priapism is a chronic, well-tolerated tumescence without full rigidity. And there is sometimes a history of perineal trauma, which is more commonly seen with non-ischemic versus ischemic priapism. So when we look at the corporal blood gas, one is the indication. So clinicians should obtain a corporal blood gas at the initial uh, presentation of priapism, and this is a clinical principle from the guidelines. Clinicians may utilize penile duplex Doppler ultrasound when the diagnosis of acute ischemic versus non-ischemic priapism is indeterminate. And again, Dr. Bivalacqua talked about imaging. So let's move back to our guide. So now we look at this patient. His penis is tumest, but he has no rigidity and he has no pain or tenderness. His ABGs show a PO2 of 92 millimeters of mercury, a PCO2 of 33 millimeters of mercury, and a pH of 7.4. So this guy is non-ischemic. He doesn't have uh, acidosis on his uh, ABG. Imaging is not done. So what is the next step at this point? So how we're gonna address this guy. So this is a new statement from the guidelines. In patient, patients should be counseled that non-ischemic priapism is not, and highlighted in red, an emergency, emergency condition, and they should be offered an initial period of observation. So the patient's not in pain, he has an erection, you did an ABG, and the ABG shows that it's non-ischemic. You don't have to rush to do anything. The first option is to offer observation to the patient. Non-ischemic priapism, like we said, is not a medical emergency, and in contrast to ischemic, it results in an, a non-ischemic results in an erection with fully oxygenated corporal blood, and thus no immediate erectile tissue damage occurs. All patients should undergo a period of at-home observation, which is around four weeks, to define if the fistula will close spontaneously, resulting in penile detumescence. 
And in cases where the fistula is unchanged, for example, if they've done a Doppler, and or where the patient is bother is significant, well, then intervention may be considered. But again, you are giving a patient a period of observation. All right, so this patient goes on observation, but he fails observation and is in significant discomfort. Again, he's not in pain, he's just in discomfort, and he's quite bothered by his condition. He's walking around with an erection all day long. So what's the next step? So again, this is another new statement from the AUA. In patients with non-ischemic priapism who have failed a trial of observation and who wish to be treated, embolization should be offered as the first-line therapy, and this is evidence level grade C. So prior to consideration for the embolization, the fistula should be readily vis visible on a duplex Doppler ultrasound, and the ultrasound should be performed in the erect state, and both penile shaft and perineum should be scanned, and that's very important that the perineum should be scanned. The scrotum should be elevated, and you should check the perineum. An angiogram is utilized to perform embolization. In 38 studies encompassing 255 patients, embolization had a documented 85% success rate as defined by penile detumescence. And more than 80% of men after embolization retain functional erections. So again, good option for patients who have bothered and who have failed observation. Now the patient opts for embolization. Which material should be used for this, for the, for this intervention? So resorbable, such as gel foam, autologous clod, and non-resorbable uh, microcoils, PVA particles, materials can be used. And here you can see an image of an embolized uh, non-ischemic priapism. Similar rates of detumescence, preservation of functional erections, and recurrence were found between studies assessing resorbable and non-resorbable agents. PVA particles used was associated with the best erectile function recovery and autologous clot the highest recurrence rate. Technical success occurred in 96 to 100 percent of cases, detumescence in 70 to 87 percent, ED in 7 to 19 percent, and recurrence rates in 13 to 20 percent over all 20 percent of patients using embolization. So the patient fails initial embolization and is still bothered by his condition. So what are we going to do next for this patient? So again, this is a new statement. The clinician should perform repeat embolization in patients who, with diagnosed non-ischemic priapism who are refractory to embolization. And data suggests that this is more likely to be effective and safer than an attempt at surgical ligation. I think many of us have neither, either never seen a surgical ligation or, <clears throat> or, uh, or, uh, you know, or even attempted one, given the lack of experience in the latter approach for most urologists and the poor data supporting ligation. Again, the patient's now priapism is resolved. We have a happy patient. He's delighted with the outcome. So how should you counsel this patient who's been embolized? So again, this is also a new statement from the guidelines. Patients should be informed that embolization carries a risk of erectile dysfunction, recurrence, and failure to correct non-ischemic priapism. In conclusion, non-ischemic priapism is not a medical emergency, and a trial of observation should be considered. Penile Doppler ultrasound identification of the fistula with embolization is the most effective, irrespective of coil type. You want to consider re-embolization for patients that recur prior to any surgical approach, and embolization can cause side effects, including erectile dysfunction, that the patient should be made aware of. And this actually em em emphasizes the importance of observing the patients first rather than rushing them to embolization. If they're not very bothered, they're not in pain, this, you know that this is, there's good oxygenation of the tissue. You don't have to rush and take them to embolize because although the erection will come down, there is still a small chance of ending up with ED after embolization. 
I'd like to acknowledge the AUA for including me within the prior president guidelines and mm -hmm. the chair of the guidelines, Trinity, for uh, being very handsome, but also for uh, including me in the guidelines and for uh, sharing a lot of the slides with me. Thank you. second one. Sorry for the technical issues, guys. I think that's the, it's the second one. Sure, go uh, ahead, sir. One. While we're waiting for the slides, it's the could second I just ask a question? This yeah. Yes, go ahead. Heard of a, of a, a, an ischemic case being done in the OR simply with a cavernosomity, uh, just for aspiration without doing the shunt? And what's why? Why not? Uh, why do that? So I'm sorry. The, the, qu the question. The question is why do the algorab shunt without also doing the snake? Simply to aspirate. Uh, are, are you talking about penoscrotal decompression? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll have a presentation on that a little bit uh, later. Yeah, so I, I'll just tell you, because we're still waiting, I'll tell you about a, a case when many, God, it was probably, you know, probably 15 years ago where um, <coughs> we had this refractory patient where we actually did that, where we brought him, and we actually did it in the cruise because we hypothesized that the cruise was just full of stagnated old blood and we couldn't get down to it with the tunnel. We, so we went in and did a, um, like we were gonna do a proximal shunt. And we opened up the corpora bilaterally in the cruise as they came underneath. And we evacuated and even injected phenylephrine because the guy's asleep, we can watch. And uh, let me tell you, did not work. Um, you know, th there, there have been case reports of people doing that. Um, there's a new technique which is not included in the guideline which we're gonna discuss that I think maybe some of you may have heard about called penoscrotal decompression which is, uses that concept. Again, the, the concept that you're discussing is if you're just opening up and, and allowing the erection to come down is based on the idea that uh, priapism is a compartment syndrome. So if you have a compartment syndrome in the leg, for example, you're gonna do a fasciotomy, right? You don't need to necessarily irrigate or aspirate, and then it's gonna release the pressure. So that's where the concept comes from. And I'll have a presentation, hopefully if PowerPoint starts working, that I'll be able to show. Um, again, apologies about the, uh, the delays. These are outside of our hands. Sorry, go ahead. PowerPoint is corrupt, so I don't know it's not working. The other thing that I'll say is, uh, uh, like Dr. Bivolacqua mentioned earlier, for those of you who wanna follow the guidelines, the, um, the first set of guidelines on uh, ischemic priapism were published uh, last year, um, and the in newer guidelines on non-ischemic priapism uh, should be published, when, when should they come out? Uh, the, the proofs were just approved, uh, so they should be out like online in any day now. 
uh, so you'll be able to look at it. Um, are we, we're still going. Um, I, I mean, wh why, don't, why don't I do this? I'm gonna stand up and, and present a case of stuttering priapism, which I think everybody here is, is sort of has to deal with in their clinical practice, just so we can keep things moving. Um, I, I, we really apologize for the technical problems, but I'll, I'll present a case of stuttering priapism. That way you can, we can, we can talk about like how, what, what you should do, um, at least what we think uh, what you should do. So. Hopefully Microsoft stock goes down after today. <laughs> okay, so um, right now I, I was really asked to present about some of the surgical considerations for priapism in terms of placement of a penile implant. Um, here are my disclosures. You know, Dr. Bivolacqua went through this, you know, as chair of the guidelines committee. Here are two of the key guidelines as it relates to penile prosthesis placement. The 36-hour time threshold he presented um, to you, and, and many of us, I think, after that 36-hour time period, really look at a lot of the data that has emerged over the past 10 to 15 years demonstrating that the corpora are, are in large part dead. So, so those of us that consider penile implant really do that in the immediate setting if shunting has not been done. I was mentioning that earlier. Risks and benefits, of course, should be talked about with the patient. Now, here are some extreme cases. So this is a patient that presented with a 16-day history of priapism, multiple emergency room visits, and unrelenting pain. You know, I think this was brought up earlier. A lot of times, maybe elsewhere, we see patients that, that get presented to our um, hospital as transfers that have had really unsuccessful injections and aspirations. And, I think we reviewed some of the data that really shows that it's not intended for aspiration to be successful in that type of a patient population. I don't know why the, the, the screen isn't working now. There you go, okay. <laughs> the T-shunt procedure and intracavernous t tunneling uh, for refractory priapism has been discussed and um, I think some of that has already been presented. Journal of Urology level data behind this you know, all of them in this series underwent cavernous tissue biopsy and necrosis was demonstrated in those patients. I'll try to talk some on this idea of early versus delayed placement. I'll show some video, I'll show some pictures as well of some of the challenges and how to proceed. This is a paper that I'm gonna talk about um, the next time I get up here, hopefully if the slides work about patients undergoing immediate versus delayed implants for priapism and characterizing some of the functional differences between those patients as well as outcome, outcome satisfactory outcome differences between those patients. So in this series, you can see some of these patients have challenges of being able to get the dilator all the way up to the gland's penis. Um, yeah, unfortunately, if you could see, that would be nice. Um, show it that way. There you go. 
You guys might want to come sit closer. Come sit closer. We don't bite. So you can see in these cases, what they have to ultimately do is make counter incisions in the corpora to be able to then open the corpora more distally and then get a dilator through. Oh, it's back. It's back. If you look, however, between patients undergoing early implant or delayed implant, the satisfaction rates for patients that undergo early implant are much higher. And the rate of shortening is much improved in people that undergo an early implant. And so for those of us that recommend early implant, we like using data like this that's been presented elsewhere. And again, much of it is through Europe. Now the algorithm for refractory priapism can really go towards medical therapy, aspiration, some of the things that were discussed. And if shunting is not done at the bottom, you see the idea of either repeating a shunt or placing an implant. And we'll discuss the guidelines do not clarify whether you place a malleable implant or a three-piece device. I tend towards malleable implant, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Now here's some of the strategy behind how you can place an, um, a penile implant in the early setting. So this is a patient that presented, here you go. So if use this if that's not working. So this is a patient that presented with multiple um, days of priapism. It's a penoscrotal approach. You can see the corporotomy. The corpora itself is quite edematous. The urethra is quite edematous. The knife is actually you know, sh not sharp enough sometimes to get through the tissue because of the level of fibrosis and scarring. Ordinarily, you'll see bright red blood in that area. This is not that. That's a cavernotome that's being used. That's a 10 millimeter cavernotome. There's a flat end to that cavernotome, which you ideally want to place sort of counter or, or, or um, um, in, in continuity with the urethral side. So you want it to face the medial side as you sort of push downward. And you can see here, as we sort of twist the cavernotome in, that bright red blood then comes out of the channel to help <laughs> really treat the compartment that was, that was talked about earlier. So again, you can stepwise sort of increase the, um, the, the cavernotome size as you get a bigger and bigger channel to hopefully treat these types of patients. You know, I've had the scenario where we've placed penile implants and then surrounding the penile implant, if enough cavernous tissue was not obliterated, I've seen cases of priapism come around a penile implant as well. Um, that's exceedingly rare, I would say. In this case, what we ultimately chose was for a codable, malleable uh, penile implant. It's made by Coloplast. There are other implants available on the market through either Boston Scientific um, or now Rigicon, which is available in this country. And so you're able to tailor the size of the implant. It's coated with antibiotics. You place the standard rear tip extender, and you're able to then negotiate the penile implant into the corpora. Now, in order to do that, you're going to ultimately need, however, a larger corporotomy in order to get a rigid device into uh, that chamber. So you sort of see how that looks ultimately, and I'll show you on both sides, we would deliver the penile implant, and then I can, I can show you at the end sort of what the penis looks like. So, so Jay, I'm just going to interrupt. Yeah, so sure. you do one implant on, on, you do your malleable on one side and then do your corporotomy in the, in No, that was for the purpose of the video. So okay, for the purpose of the video, we actually have two-sided corporotomies. Okay, good. Definitely. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah, two-sided corporotomies and we didn't show the other side. Okay. We placed one side, then placed the other side. Absolutely. Thank you. And 
Yes, good, good clarification. So let's summarize it real quickly. Long corporotomies, long corporotomies help in being able to not only perform a safe dilation in a tough fibrotic and or compartment syndrome type case. The second thing um, that we, I, I think, are, is important is sort of the dilation strategy. I told you about cavernotomes and how we might utilize them. Remove the clotted blood to the best of your ability. Get bright red blood if you can. Place the malleable device. This is a key part. Downsizing the penile implant is something that should be, should be undertaken when you put the implant in. The corpora themselves are quite edematous in these scenarios. So the, the accuracy of the corporal measurement is poor. So if you try to oversize or even correctly size the implant, once the edema wears off, that implant is actually too large. So you should downsize the measurement by one centimeter and actually try to place the tip right at the coronal junction and not, not sort of into the glands. And certainly with closure, what we've also undertaken is a running closure sometimes to help promote hemostasis. And in the devices that are amenable, such as the device I just showed you, we would even place a suture through the device at the time of corporotomy closure to help prevent distal migration of the device, if that makes sense, okay? Patients do really well from a pain standpoint. You preserve their potency. Let's look at a delayed case of how you manage delayed implants. Here's a nice video, um, I think, of a, a patient that has significant fibrosis. So the dissection down to the corporal body itself in patients that had a history of priapism, and then weeks to several months later, you take them to the operating room. So this was a patient that had, I think it was three weeks of priapism, was, was not managed with surgery, shunts were attempted, and this was really the corpora. You can see there's no bright red blood, no blood returning. Big corporotomy again, cavernotomes used again, reverse cutting scissors, sometimes necessary. I would say, you know, it, for, for the novice um, implanter or for the early experienced implanter, making a large corporotomy I think would be very beneficial. So we didn't make as large of a corporotomy in this case, and I would say that making a large one if you're tackling these is something that you should consider. Sometimes you have to make as large of a corporotomy all the way up to the gland's penis in order to deliver a cylinder. You know, sometimes what we've done is we've actually looked towards placing the furlough into the penis or into the gland or towards the glands and then actually closing around the furlough so that we don't have the device, you know, sort of flailing about, keeping a small corporotomy then more proximally and then delivering the device. So this is a patient that underwent a three-piece device because, again, it was not placed in the acute setting. All right? They can be somewhat disfiguring. There is a fair amount of morbidity to this. You can see this scar that patients get that correspond to the corporotomy. Finally, some tips. If there's no cavernous channel available, I told you already, extend the corporotomy. You know, Paul Perito is high volume implanter, highest volume implanter in the world um, that gave me this tip a while ago, that if you're unable to get to the glands, one, one thing you could do is use the pin on the furlough device to try to insert it into the glands. That's a little challenging. Be careful and, and try to certainly avoid a urethral injury. Cavernotomes, I think, are important to have, and, and I think to what Dr. Bivlaco was suggesting. If you don't really have all the tools in your armamentarium to tackle this, then I think there are people now, certainly nationally, that, that are, would be happy to tackle this for you with, within each state. 
All right, penile implant placement has valuable role in management. Considerations for the early insertion of a malleable allow for improved satisfaction, preservation of length, and treatment of the presenting condition. All right, sorry again for all the technical issues. I think they're gonna hopefully work on it for the next course. So, so Jay, if you can, sorry. I think I would love to hear you really be a little bit more clear on why you use a malleable yes. and not a three-piece. Yes. Because I think that's an important point that needs to be, I think, um, thoughtfully discussed. Um, you can talk about the evidence and then your personal belief. Yeah, so um, some of this I'll sort of review in, in, in the next, yeah, the next presentation that you've pulled up. We can just go right to it, and I can talk about it in detail during the presentation as well. I think there are various, various sort of pros and cons to it. Um, you know, the malleable implant, I think, for one, is cheaper than the three-piece device. I think that's a big consideration. Two, the rate of revision of patients that undergo a malleable penile implant, I'm sorry, any penile implant in the immediate setting is high. So the chances they're going to need that device revised is high. And I can show you some data if the uh, PowerPoint slides were working. So, so again, in sometimes not in this country, in other countries as well, is this it? Yeah, let's see. Is that the first one? It was the first one. I need the other other presentation yeah so so I think the rate of revision being high yep that one the rate of revision being high alone I think should give us pause to using a three-piece device if you know that it's going to require revision again the other the third reason is the goal of management in the acute setting is to treat the pain and resolve their presentation as most effectively as you can and to manage the edema of the corporal body as best as you can. So to help manage all of that, sometimes the three-piece device isn't able to be as rigid to then provide the obliteration necessary to the corporal space. And again, that's more, I would say, opinion and not necessarily backed up or, or suggested by the guidelines. So I'll try to sort of... This is the same one. This is the one. same one? No, no. This is so. so the guidelines don't specify sort of malleable versus inflatable, right? And so what I'll try to do is review three studies real quick for you, again, done out of Europe, that, that I think are, are the guide to how I've considered malleable more in this type of a setting. So this is one of the original papers that looked at the immediate insertion of a penile implant done by uh, Mr. Ralph's group in London. And if you look at the data and the results of this paper, the majority of these patients had malleable implants. So the data of penile implant in the priapism population is really shaped around malleable recipients, not three-piece recipients. So this was 43 out of 50 patients received a malleable, and then later some patients required revision to a three-piece or they wanted a revision to a three-piece. You know, if you take that original patient I presented, I presented this data earlier, 68 immediate versus 27 delayed. This paper as well, 64 patients had a malleable implant, only four patients had a three-piece device. So just from a data standpoint and standing behind the data of putting in a penile implant, if you look at the collective body of evidence, a lot of it is really tailored towards the malleable implant. And we might, we might then sort of extend that towards the three-piece, but, but the most data is behind, a penile, is behind the malleable implant. 
So, so, and then this, most importantly, I think, is another series out of Mr. Ralph's group that was presented, I think, around five, six years ago that, that really talks specifically about why the malleable implant in the acute setting uh, is, is really also a reasonable treatment for people that had underwent even recent shunting. Not immediate shunting, recent shunting. So, so I think, you know, to, to Trinity's question, I'll try to summarize that in, you know, three or four bullet points. There is certainly a cost consideration for, for patients that present, both in this country and other countries. And the reason there's a cost consideration is the revision rate is, is real in patients with priapism due to their corporal edema. So the third being, you know, management of the initial condition is really to just manage their pain and, you know, prevent any discomfort that they've already presented with. The malleable allows for more effective obliteration because it's always rigid. And the three-piece device isn't always rigid. It could be, it could be sort of deflated, certainly. And so I, I hope that sort of gets to what Trinity was suggesting. Yeah, go ahead. How many of your malleables end up transfer, switching over to an inflatable in your practice? Many. many. So many, many of the malleables end up, end up switching. And even though we undersize it by, let's say, one centimeter, as I had recommended, many of those patients, months later, the corporal measurement requires revision. So, so it's even then, you know, it's a, it's a temporary spacer-type implant to manage their presentation to the emergency room but it allows you to more effectively place a more durable device at a later date. My only concern with this approach uh, is from an insurance perspective, right? Because the, the Medicaid patient, for example, all right, you might not be able to switch out his malleable to an inflatable unless he has a complication from his malleable because of insurance purposes, right? Right. And we, we showed data um, about coverages for implants, so it changes from state to state. So some states will not cover inflatable devices. So if you're in one of those states, you're kind of, you know, forcing that guy to stay with a malleable because you won't be able to cover it for the, you know, to get the the well, uh, That's the main. That's no, and and truthfully, you know, and I think state to state to what, uh, you know, and I know Faisal's uh, got a good paper on this, looking at sort of payer benefits state by state. You know, in our state, they wouldn't allow you to place a three-piece device in a Medicaid patient that had priapism or otherwise. You would have to place a malleable device. So, so I think that's some of the considerations that I was talking about. There are insurance and cost considerations for all of those patients. And I'll just make the point, um, does anybody have, have an idea of, to, to, I'll ask the question, what percentage of, of urologists in the United States today, and we looked at a database that, that actually went up to 2020, today actually place an inflatable penile prosthesis in the acute setting. So acute setting just means within, honestly, 30 days, because in their studies, they, they consider acute two weeks to a month from presentation. Because remember, at the N, in the NHS, they can sit on the floor for two weeks, ha have pain control, cool them down with antibiotics, let all their swelling go down, and then do their case. That's right. Okay. But in the United States today, does anybody have an idea of how many urologists are actually doing what Jay is describing? Anybody? Not anyone? What do you think? What's that? Oh, it's, it's less than 10%. Yeah. Okay, so cheap. this is not a common, like, thing that's being done, okay? The other thing that I'll say is, is that the revision rates, as Jay is pointing to, the revision rates for this procedure is as high as 20 to 25%, and that's in the best hands so this is a very different, this is, this is a higher risk group 
Um, and, and that, you know, so there are lots of people that may not feel um, like this, that this should be the first, you know, thing, thing you do in your toolbox. Another consideration is, Jay, um, in your patients with that distal, sh uh, distal uh, shunt or a, a goral, I know there are different populations a little bit. How long are you waiting before you put the implant? Yeah, we wait, we wait a month. We you wait a month at most, at, at least one okay. month, yeah. at least one month, because of what, what we just talked about. And, and I think Martin had really nice pictures on the distal shunting. And you know, it's, it's very reasonable to consider that you put an implant in that patient, the risk of distal extrusion is real, real high. So, so we wait at least a month before we would place a three-piece device in that, or, or, or uh, a malleable or a three-piece device in that type of a patient. And, and usually, we, would, we wouldn't do it at, at even a month. I think the month is the soonest we've done it. In many of those cases, we attempt medical therapy for ED first. And you know, to, to what Trinity's point is, I think the data are quite clear that you know, for, for some of those patients, based on time of presentation, the, the certainty of refractory erectile dysfunction is real, but some patients want to still progress through you know, non-surgical therapies before proceeding to surgical therapy, and we're okay doing that. And so we would, we would still do it that way. Okay. What are the odds my slides are going to come up? What do you think? Yeah, who knows? Sure. We can, so, so uh, and I can sort of start talking about, um, my slides don't really have any videos, though. It's mostly just kind of stuff. Can we, can we try pulling those up? Yeah, let's take questions while we're here. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, Rick Bennett from Michigan. So since these papers came out, and I've been discussing with my residents, they're always on the hunt for the patient for us to do this in, right? The problem is if I'm not on call and I'm not the first person to see the patient, they've got shunted the night before, and then I'll take over and round on them the next day, they've all just been shunted. So then we're in this position where how long do you wait? Four to six weeks. So what percentage of the ones you're doing have never been shunted, and they're going straight from failed irrigation aspiration to malleable? A hundred percent of the ones that receive an immediate implant. If they receive an implant after presenting to the hospital and they have not been discharged from the hospital and we've put an implant in then, they have not been shunted. That's, that's I think, a key point. We would not put an immediate device in anyone who has been shunted. So I guess my point in there is where does the turn in the algorithm happen if you have a prosthetic urologist who's comfortable doing that, where they exit the rest of the normal pathway without a shunt, right? So if right. I was willing to do it and we establish a plan with our residents, where would they shunt that guy off and just be like, okay, wait six hours and I'll do it in the morning instead of a 2 a.m. shunt? Right. So, so that would be the patient that presents to the hospital. And, and, and for us, at least in Philadelphia, um, that patient often ends up being someone involved with law enforcement that, you know, is a prisoner or was in some sort of correctional facility that had priapism for a week and, and were, ne were neglected in whatever facility they were in. And then they present to the hospital and we get called about that. A shunt is not undertaken. And to your point, if it's two days or more and they've two presented days. without being shunted, we would, we would consider an implant and discuss it with the patient, 
have a formal documentation about the risks and benefits per guidelines, and, and in those patients that are willing to proceed, we would proceed. So in that counseling, if they're over 48 hours, if I was gonna shunt them, I'd be snaking them with it. What would you quote them for the ED rate with a shunt and the snake to compare to we might as well just do the implant? Like not in trying yeah. to sell it, but in trying to give them the reasonable information to make One, that decision. 100%. I yeah. quote 100%, yeah. Yeah. and the David Ralph data is amazing for that. The 2014 Journal of Urology yeah. paper where they did corporal biopsies on all patients, 48 hours or more, 100% rate of necrosis. The, the one thing is that, you know, a lot of these patients, um, you know, the, it's, it's tricky when the time starts, right? Because the guy might show up and he's had priapism for four days, but sometimes he really hasn't had priapism for four days. He might right. have D2MS for a little bit, came back up, et cetera. So it's kind of, the timing can be a little bit tricky. Yeah. Uh, you just came up with like a psychiatric patient. Yeah. He'd just been started. Inpatient psych, went on transidone for the first time, gets sent home you know, reluctant to come in because he just left an inpatient facility and waited four days. Right. And so he comes in and then we're having this discussion and I offered it to him. He didn't go for sure. it. He was 24 years old, wanted to take his chances. Right. Yeah. So I, I just want to read the statement in the guidelines so we're clear. We're going to go through it. Clinicians may consider, may consider, placement of penile prosthesis in a patient with untreated acute ischemic priapism greater than 36 hours, or in those who are refractory to shunting with or without tunneling. Now, this is the important point. It's an expert opinion. We could not give you level of evidence for this. Why? Because as you've heard from my colleagues, all there are are the three or four papers that are out of one unit at you know UCL in London. There's no other experience that's really that's robust right. that, that's, that's been published. So, um, and then the next, which is grade, we actually have level of evidence for this, is in patients with acute ischemic priapism who is being considered for placement of penile prosthesis, clinicians should discuss the risk and benefits of early versus delayed placement. That's where it comes into that shared decision-making. So your patient that you're talking about, it, it's, it's really how much you wanna sit down with that individual, have the conversation, whatnot. I will tell you, um, at least, when I was in Baltimore, I haven't had the opportunity to do it in Philadelphia because I think Jay's just taking them all, um, is uh, the priapism patients that we try to place a prosthesis in in the middle of the night, they're actually getting denied um, coverage for it because what happens is they just, then it gets it's sent to the, to the, um, to the uh, uh, insurance company and they're like, wait a minute, like there's no evidence, you know, we're not paying for this. So like I would tell you, you should cool that person down. You know, they're there for days, you know, whatever, a week. Cool them down, have a conversation, consider, you know, getting this covered by insurance, because if not, you're gonna very a very unhappy patient. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is you heard about, you can shunt someone, get them down, and then, and then, and then, and then do a delayed prosthesis, which I'll talk about. Um, the other option is, is that if the distal shunting with tunneling is ineffective, you can always still place a prosthesis by undersizing the malleable, where you're not tunneling it all the way in. And, and that's, I can tell you, our fellows at Hopkins, me and Burnett, Bud, Burnett, 
that they were in the middle of the night because they were taking call. They were placing all these prostheses in everybody, and literally, uh, you know, six or eight weeks later, I was seeing them in my clinic with a with a with Extrusion. extruded yeah. malleable, and I was like, "Did you undersize?" And they're like, "Uh, no." Right. So that's the inexperience versus what we're telling you. And and it, and it really should be a generous undersize, and and that's and that's I think a key point from this. When you look at some of those pictures I was showing, you know, how do you how are you th that confident that that measurement is an accurate measurement? That will be their measurement six months from now, right? It's it's very difficult to say that. Yeah. We have we have someone. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Un unpopular opinion, but if you have that guy and he's a lot of pain and you're not going to do the implant on him right now, do penoscrotal decompression. Um, I'll I'll show some slides about what that is because you're not going to you're not going to violate the distal corpora. So you're not going to risk any extrusion or anything afterwards, but I'll show some slides in a minute. That's a very unpopular opinion. The other thing I think that we have not addressed in the circumstance is that not all of us have uh, uh, implant materials in stock, yeah, right? Exactly. So, so you know, I have, I have uh, my, my box and, that I keep in my, my uh, in the OR, but for a lot of people who are placing implants, those implants, no, I, I really want to get to that question, though. Don't walk away. I got your question. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. <laughs> Let me just... No, no, no. I'll, I'll finish babbling and then we'll go. But but you know my uh, so I have my, my 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 stuff in stock. But a lot of people they're they're reliant on their um, their rep to come in. And if it's two o'clock in the morning, I mean my rep you know lives in Connecticut. That's not happening. You know so how am I going to get my rep to come up here and, and put an implant in? But malleables have a very long shelf life and and can be kept. I keep two in my car just in case I'm driving around and I need to like put an implant oh in God. at random occasions, right? So so you know my, my rep asks me every six months, she says I'm doing inventory checks. Do you still have those malleables in your car? I say, yep, that's it. Problem solved. Uh, we do we do keep malleables in the hospital. Yep. So so again, you know, if, if you're gonna be someone who wants to undertake these types of things, we c we carry some of that on the shelf. Yep. Um, have just implant, just we'll to be ready. In Disc the event that patient presents. Discounted implants in the parking lot at Dartmouth. In case, <laughs> in case anybody's looking. In. Cash, right. all cash. That's right, please. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of related to everything. Was that the, the, the biggest hesitancy for me to do a, a screwed implant is all the practical applications, right? And do you have a financial discussion with the patient? It's like, hey, you know, you've been here for 96 hours. If you do an implant, but you might get a $10,000 bill. Do you want to take that chance? I mean, we have, we have the financial services department of the hospital review everything before we sort of plunge ahead. Now, now they then sort of work on the emergency insurance approval for those types of patients. Again, you need the right hospital setting, the right sort of payer mix, the right insurance plans to be able to undertake it. And that's some of why I was, I was talking about the, the cost considerations of it. Yeah, but we wouldn't though, right? So if someone presents with, let's say, 30, you know, 40 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours of priapism, there is no rush. There is no, at that point, there is no rush. It's a pain control that needs to be done. And then, you know, the discussion has to be had. And if those patients want to move forward with implant, well, then we have time. You know, unfortunately, you know, we need to also manage their pain, certainly, and we're able to do that. But it's not yet, it's not an immediate emergency at that point. And I know of several institutions in this country where patients present with several days of priapism and they've changed their protocols in the emergency room to send them home. By the way, and Jay, then follow up. That pain management, an epidural, very effective in that circumstance, right? Yeah. You just you give a guy no feeling from the waist down and he sits there, you know, for a couple of days on the floor with a you know right. engorged to mess into awful penis. Uh, and it works very well. 
Um, yeah, was there, was there a follow-up question on there? No. You good, you good? So yeah. the, other, the other circumstance I think that's sort of interesting is, you know, and we talked about this, Jade had touched on this, is prisoners, right? So the, the, you know, one of the instances I had of this uh, circumstance, we had a, a nice young gentleman who was a sickle cell patient who had been, um, he had cycled through the, the Dartmouth-Hitchcock system so much that essentially he had taught all of the residents for 10 years or so how to, how to uh, take care of his uh, uh, starving priapism. And, you know, finally showed up, uh, uh, I started there and he showed up on my doorstep with, uh, you know, like a 72-hour case of priapism and, and uh, the cost issue, because he was a prisoner, you know, I, I went to the, the state prison, which funds their own health insurance, and I said, so if I put this implant in, uh, you know, this will be, let's say, I don't know, X amount of money for you guys, and then he'll never have any costs again, as far as this is concerned. And, you know, I obviously spoke to him about this concept as well, and, and he was totally okay with the idea, but the, the prison was elated by the idea that they were not gonna have to pay what you know was averaging tens of thousands of dollars a year for these ER visits and admissions and all this other stuff that was uh, um, not particularly effective. That's true, the prisons, I've found the same, that the prisons are actually very much willing for you to put a penile implant in those patients. And of course, like all, like all you know, patients who are, who are of, of compromised uh, decision-making status because they're in prison, for example, this has to be a very, very thorough and very clear document conversation. You don't want them to feel like there's any sort of uh, impetus on your part to do this. This is something that you're saying this could be effective for you if you want. Are, are my, uh, I have I have my, my so not mine, that's Dr. Yaffe, I'm the other guy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. We should have, I should have labeled it like fat bald guy and then, you know, <laughs> I, I stick out compared to the other guys. So that'll be, yes, correct, yep, yep. It should be priapism individual management. So one of the points of this this course was you know, spending about half the time uh, kind of, again, you know, we have two esteemed members of the panel uh, that, that create these guidelines, and I wanted to sort of have uh, some opportunity to say, you know, what else should be on there? What, what hasn't gone through, and what else can we talk about that, that could be on there? And also just to, you know, offer my critiques to my friends, who I'm very fond of, but, you know, who I, the, the guidelines are, are wonderful and fantastic and much, much improved over previous, but I'd like to, you know, needle them a little bit. So, uh, that's that one, this one. Oh boy, oh boy. Liquor's not working. Now we got, ah, wait, oh, no. Uh, there we go, okay, my disclosures once again. Okay, so the original Priapism Guidelines, 2003, right? Up until 2003, there had been about 1,700 scholarly articles about Priapism published, and there was a whole lot more published between 2003 and 2010 when the guidelines, the previous set of guidelines were updated. Um, a grand total of, of, you know, a lot of articles over the last 131 years, obviously the bulk of them occurring in the last uh, uh, 20 or 30 or so. But between 2010 and 2021, when these guideline bodies were getting together to, to create the new updated version, there was a whole lot of stuff that was very, very different. And so the utility of these new guidelines is that they really incorporated a lot of comprehensive and useful science that just did not exist in the previous iterations of the guidelines. So of the current references that are in the new guideline panel, uh, almost half were published in 2010 or later. So this is a very rigorous and well done uh, guideline and certainly as compared to previous, it certainly is much more updated and useful. And I'm glad we are done. With that process, yeah, I would imagine, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not with this though, we still got, we still got more. Uh, okay, so I, so when I started my practice, I, I spent the last, I don't know, however many years, uh, giving the residents a talk about the previous guidelines and how I thought they were ineffective and not particularly useful anymore. And so this is the first slide from that talk. And there was a lot of things I would, I would kind of complain about that, that Dr. Bivalacqua, Dr. Yaffe, and the many other esteemed panelists have updated, uh, which was much, much better. I'm very pleased. But I still have some things, some nits to pick. 
And so a couple of nits I have to pick are in the, the certainly uh, in the, the injection process of the procedure uh, where or the, the, the algorithm uh, and the guidelines where we talk about sort of what, what to do in these circumstances. Um, and so in Appendix A, we're talking about how to give phenylephrine, oh boy, okay, and how to give phenylephrine. Um, it says consider performing a penile block with local anesthetic prior to uh, beginning the, the, uh, your management procedures. Whereas in Appendix B, we're talking about aspiration and irrigation. It says, uh, it says that you should definitely perform a PNL block uh, with local medication if it has not been previously performed. And I'm, I'm confused as to why there's that discrepancy between those two points, guys. Because from my perspective, what I, what I really try to tell the residents in every single step of the process is that they really need to explain everything to the patient in a step-by-step -step fashion so they know what's happening, obviously. And that they really should, you know, for the purposes of being humane, and, and comforting the patient, place a dorsal penile nerve block. I mean, even in a guy in the clinic who I have who, let's say I'm doing a, a penile ultrasound on him and he gets a priapism, uh, I make sure that I give him a dorsal penile block before I start shooting him up with, you know, what could be 13, 14, 15 shots of phenylephrine. So that, to me, it seems like the, the sort of the waffling on that was, was somewhat confusing that I would like to know more about. Also, they did address in the guidelines, it's very important to me that I tell my residents uh, every single time is to make sure the patients are on blood pressure and heart rate monitoring. Uh, I think this is extremely important, uh, particularly because the, the wide swings in vascular parameters you can have uh, when patients are on the um, uh, getting phenylephrine injections is, is very important. Some suggestions I had for the guidelines uh, that, you know, many, many providers will be frantically Googling this in the middle of the night, going like, what am I supposed to do, right? And, and um, the guidelines, I feel, were written to a subspecialty reading level and not necessarily to the level of, of ED doctors and stuff like that. Not, not all that applies to them, obviously, but a lot of them are going to be making these recommendations. And so, you know, some of it is, is uh, arcane terminology that really we are familiar with as urologists that, that perhaps an ED doctor is going to look uh, somewhat confused by. Um, I, I think the, the, uh, the expert opinion stuff uh, is very helpful and very useful. I, I wish we could have done more with that, but I imagine with any kind of guideline body, there's a lot of uh, horse trading that needs to happen in that circumstance, and I, I can only um, um, pity the, the difficulty that was in that process. Uh, and I, I think it is just obviously very important in general for all of us, my, my touchstone on this, this lecture here today is, is to really make sure that, that we teach our residents as properly as we can. Um, because they will also be teaching the ER residents as properly as they can. Okay, part two of my nits to pick, and then we can we can debate back and forth. But um, the dosing of phenylephrine again, pretty similar to previous, if I'm not mistaken. There's, there's not much difference between the two, um, and the recommendation that they be premixed by by pharmacy. Um, and there certainly is a lot of data uh, about phenylephrine dosages and stuff like that, um, and and the sort of safety margins inherent in that process. But the guideline statement certainly did, at least in the, in the subtext of it, say that higher doses of phenylephrine may be uh, you know, more useful than those suggesting the guidelines. So what the guidelines, I think, said, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but it said these are the safe things that you, know, you can use and that certainly higher doses of, and concentration of phenylephrine may be more effective, um, which I think is a very good way to do that. I, I think, but there is a lot of evidence that, that we know of that higher doses are effective, right? And this all goes all the way back to Irwin in 2006, Dr. Goldstein at BU. Um, where you talk about sort of the binding affinity of phenylephrine to their binding sites and in very highly acidic surface uh, 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 areas that, that binding affinity is much less. So faster and higher doses of phenylephrine, so more regular than the, the guideline recommendations and certainly at higher concentrations, guideline recommendations are needed to really overcome that acidity and really get the penis to go down pretty well. Um, Dr. Goldstein did note in this small series, obviously, that there were two cases of priapism that lasted quite a long time. They were well treated. What used to happen in my residency 
was that we would struggle in the ER. I think I saw 42 priapisms in the first six months of my intern year. And we would, you know, sit down there struggling and, and kind of batting away with these sort of namby-pamby doses of uh, phenylephrine. And, and then Ricardo Meneres would just come downstairs and, and, you know, just start guns blazing, you know, full out of the bottle, just jamming guys' penises, and they would go right away. You know, so we'd spend an hour or two kind of struggling, and then it would, it would dissipate. I'm not suggesting we do that, but I, I think that reevaluating sort of the concentrations that we have, uh, and, and there are at least three papers I'm going to cite here that talk about that higher concentrations are, are certainly uh, feasible and useful. Um, this paper also talked about, um, you know, the sort of the durations that are appropriate, and high-dose phenylephrine is not better than conventional doses at really prolonged priapism episodes, obviously, uh, because the smooth muscle is just no longer useful or viable tissue in that circumstance. More recent paper than this has came out about 10 years later, again out of BU in Boston, uh, where I trained in residency, which is why I'm sort of hammering on this point, um, is, you know, we do a dilution that is stronger, I would say, than, than what the pharmacy will send you. The final concentration is pretty significant. Um, and uh, that many, many patients uh, are treated successfully at this concentration and that there were no reported complications at all in the patients who are treated in this series. So this, uh, this is certainly very useful information. And then this great paper that came out of Miami as well, um, the, the dosage, again, very similar to our concentration of phenylephrine uh, uh, in, at, in BU in Boston. Many patients went home successfully to medicine, but they, in the study, they also really took a, a significant effort to monitor uh, uh, heart rate and BP changes in that circumstance, and the, the changes in heart rate and BP, so sort of the safety of higher dose phenylephrine. Uh, we talked about the efficacy, they're talking about the safety. The safety is clearly there, where the, the, you know, the mean changes in, in these um, two parameters that could easily be affected by phenylephrine concentrations that are higher don't really change all that much, uh, which is certainly very useful data. Broader suggestions, obviously, about priapism in general, we, it needs a lot more basic science and clinical research attention than we actually are giving it. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the money for this just isn't there, and the research dollars uh, certainly could be de uh, devoted to this would be very useful. A national prospective database to sort of see where we're all doing and if it makes sense would be certainly very sensible. Um, I try to keep pretty good data in my institution. I think if everybody can do that, that certainly that can be a very useful uh, thing for, for combining databases. And again, the new guidelines are a major leap forward in consolidating the science and the techniques and really, you know, making it as, as updated as possible. And last but not least, after me criticizing you for the last 15 minutes, I want to thank you guys very, very much. These three handsome gentlemen have done a wonderful uh, yeoman's amount of work with this, uh, this course, and I really, really appreciate it, and it's been lots of fun to work with you guys. Since I was the chair, I guess I'll answer the questions. I'll be brief because I want to make sure we have time for the last two talks. Um, so the reason uh, <laughs> I agree with you, I have no idea. I don't even remember. I was trying to think, like, did we even talk about penile block? Like, I don't even remember that. So um, I apologize. That's probably, that's goofy. I agree with you. Do a penile block if you would like, and you have it accessible prior to phenylephrine. I think it's probably in there, to be honest with you, because it's probably left over from the old guideline and where we were talking about doing intracavernosal injection therapy, and we wouldn't do a penile block for intracavernosal injection therapy, so why would you do one if you're just giving phenylephrine? But if you believe as the clinician that you're gonna proceed to aspiration, distal shunting, whatnot, do a penile block. Mm -hmm. That would be my answer. Uh, but good catch, I don't remember that. Um, and then, as far as the dosing, I will tell you, and you know, unfortunately you probably remember these discussions, 
When you're sitting at a guidelines panel, this one, these were by Zoom. Actually, the first one was in person, and the rest were by Zoom. There's a lot of very strong opinions as to what you should inject first. So for example, there was uh, John Mulhall who thought that you should inject one milligram or two milligrams up front, just like you're describing, mm -hmm. and go. Um, uh, and he trained with Erwin, so it makes sense that he, that he would say that. Others um, felt like it was important that we protect our urologists in the community um, by allowing them to do a stepwise approach because there are case reports of hemorrhagic stroke with injection of high doses of phenylephrine. And we felt like it was important that we protect, protect the urologist practicing in the community and, and give them and advise them as to a stepwise approach. But uh, if you ask me, what do I do when I go down, if I have a resident and, or if they're, you know, someone's in clinic, uh, I put them on a monitor, eject them with, I do, a, I do one milligram or a thousand micrograms, I don't do 2,000 mm -hmm. micrograms. And honestly, it works, I mean, as you stated. Um, the other thing that's important, you have to aspirate, as I talked about before, in order to get oxygenated blood. Do you have anything else to add? No, I mean, uh, I again, so, you know, the guidelines do say 100 to 500 micrograms to start, so it's a, it's, it's a pretty good dose. So I start with 500 micrograms. I actually don't put them on a blood pressure monitor till I go over one milligram. So I do 500 micrograms, because when I used to do 200, uh, to start, then I was injecting them multiple times. When I do 500, it decreased the number of injections significantly. I don't do a penile block before giving phenylephrine. I do 500 micrograms. Usually, we have to repeat it once. If I go over a, a one milligram, then I'll do a, uh, then I'll put them on a monitor. We've never had any issues doing it that way. All right, let's try and pack in our last two questions. Right. Will you put mine up? Because I'll be honest with you, I can do it very quickly, and then I think Yafi is going to is going to talk about a really cool. I don't think cool, but others think cool uh, approach to this. Um, and, and, and honestly, to, to be fair to him, um, a, lot of our, uh, a, a lot of our review, so I don't know if you guys realize how this works, but when you do a guideline, it sends out for peer review. And you as urologists in the, in the community are able to give back opinions and, and comments on the, on the actual manuscript and on actual guidelines. And as a chair, vice chair, when you're doing this, we had I think it was uh, about 700 comments from reviewers that we have to address in the, in, in, in the guideline. We have to justify if we believe it should be or should not be. So um, I would encourage you, if you, if you want to have comments about a guideline, do it. Um, so this is a case actually from, from Baltimore, a 49-year-old black man, history of sickle cell disease, previous episodes of recurrent ischemic priapism all lead into acute priapic events necessitating corporal aspiration and uh, intracavernosal phenylephrine. Now presents with a, a priapism greater than 30 hours, and the guy just said, listen, I've had this happen so many times, I thought it, it would resolve, so I didn't come in. He does report erectile dysfunction because of all of these previous episodes, uh, and he's on PD-5 inhibitors without success. Uh, I talked about this, uh, we talked about this. So. Um, I think really what, what I'd like to point out is the goals of shunt surgery. So I, this is what we teach our residents. As you've heard, resolution of pain, preservation of quality of life, as, and this is all related to erectile function recovery, as well as prevention of penile fibrosis and preservation of erectile function. The way you prevent fibrosis is you actually get to them early you remove all of the stagnated blood, you reoxygenate the corpora so you don't have that necrosis and atrophy of smooth muscle. That is the goal of shunt surgery. As it relates to surgical management, um, I, I, I wanna make the point, uh, my job here today is to defend tunneling. 
um, is that we don't have any comparative studies to, to look at tunneling versus a distal shunt like the Algarab, which is the most effective. So we don't have data for that. The Algarab shunt, as, as you heard, is I, I, I will say I don't put sutures in. I actually take an Alice clamp, so I make an incision in the glands. I then palpate the distal corpora. I put an Alice clamp on the distal corpora, and I take the bovi on the cut setting and just cut and excise the distal aspect of the corpora just enough to where I can put a Hagar dilator in. This is the rationale to tunneling. And this, I would, I would encourage you, this is sort of the, the why, you, why we do it and why the modification was made. I want to give credit to two individuals, Tom Liu at uh, UCSF and Bud Burnett at Hopkins, who were the first to talk about tunneling. So if you have severe edema and necrosis within the corpora cavernosa, distal shunts do not adequately drain the proximal corpora. And if you think about it, that's where the, the, the vessels coming off of the uh, in, internal pudendal then branch off into the base or cruce of the penis. So you want to reestablish that, that blood flow. And in order to do that, if you just do a distal shunt, you're not going to get down and extend that shunt down into the uh, proximal cruce. So if you use in, in, in the series done by, um, uh, from Hopkins, uh, Bud Burnett, myself, we used a Hagar dilator, the same dilators you use for an IPP. And with Tom Liu, he used, used urethral sounds, okay? Um, when you do this, if you snake or tunnel down to the base of the penis, as you heard from my colleagues, you will get 100% ED rate. You are destroying the tissue, and therefore you will get erectile dysfunction. We only do this in people that have prolonged erections, as you've heard of, at least 20, you know, within you know, 36 hours or more, and frankly, we would do it in someone who had you know, 24 hours or more that had ED, as, as, as this patient did. Um, this is a salvage procedure. The reason why it's a salvage procedure is because we, we are telling that patient, we are doing this to relieve your compartment syndrome, get rid of the pain, and then we are setting you up for a penile prosthesis in the future. That's the purpose of this, of this procedure. And frankly, all of us that are taking care of these patients in the middle of the night, the next day, whatnot, that's what we're doing, okay? I want to make the point, in the series from Hopkins, we had urethral injuries we de that developed fistula. We had wound infections, gland skin necrosis. It happens. Why does it happen? Because these people are coming to us with previous distal shunts, previous you know, percutaneous shunts, you name it. So... In my practice, after I've done tunneling, I scope them. I do a cystoscopy just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. Because if, if you did, then guess what? You just put a catheter in, you leave it in for 10 days, take it out, patient will be fine. This was the two series. Um, I, I, I think we've co covered this. I want to make the point about proximal shunting once again. Um, proximal shunting is a historic operation and should not be performed if you can tunnel and get down to the cruise. That's the bottom line. Um, and I would encourage, you know, if you are trying to do this in, in, as a salvage procedure, as I described, then you really don't um, uh, need uh, to consider a proximal shunt in any way. So I'll stop there. I want to give Yafi some, some time to talk about penoscrotal decompression, which I think it will warrant some, um, some uh, discussion. Can you put in the next um, speaker, please?
All right, I know everybody's tired, so this will be the last presentation, and then hopefully we'll have a few minutes for questions. I'll try to make this brief so we can have some questions. Um, so I'm going to talk about penoscrotal decompression. And my biggest disclosure on this is I am part of the AUA uh, uh, guidelines on priapism, yet nevertheless, I have not done a distal shunt in a long time, and I've been switched mostly to uh, penoscrotal decompression. So the reason I do this is uh, ischemic priapism is really an acute compartment syndrome. So if you have an, a, a compartment syndrome in the leg, you're going to do a fasciotomy. So it's pretty similar to what we're going to consider here for penoscrotal decompression. So imagine you have a guy who comes in with this ischemic priapism, the penis is really, really tense, you have a really, really rigid erection, and the patient is in pain, right? You can do all kinds of things, but still, the only way you're gonna relieve the pain is by relieving the, 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 the compressive, compressive effect, right? So this is where uh, penoscrotal decompression came in as a new uh, treatment paradigm, and this was championed by Al Mori, who happens to be uh, <coughs> Dr. Simhan's mentor and fellowship, uh, but Dr. Simhan is not listening to Dr. Mori. So, this is how it works. So you do a, uh, a, scrotal, a penoscrotal incision. Everybody knows how to do this. It's a small incision, the same way you do a penoscrotal incision for, a, for an IPP. You make a small corporotomy. The corporotomy does not have to be big. We do about a five millimeter corporotomy, very easy. My re the residents do this, it's super easy. What they do is then they take an eight French pediatric uh, a metal suction tip. Again, the importance here is you really want to use the smallest suction tip you have because the idea here is that we don't want to destroy the corporal tissue. When we're talking about tunneling and you're going in and out with your, with your dilators, you're destroying the corpora. So here the idea is we're not shoving this thing and, and, and trying to destroy the tissue. We're just trying to make a passage for the blood to come out. So we're going to go distally and then we're gonna go again proximally. And again, as you know, if you look at the anatomy, you know the crura split and go lateral as you go proximal, so you wanna follow the crura and not perforate when you're doing this. And what we do is we just pass it once forward and once back. Um, and sometimes we need to move more, more than one passage. So the way we do it, as you can see, uh, we do one side. And then we do one side and we close that side loosely. So we put a few sutures on the corporotomy, and then we wait in the room. So we sit there for three minutes chatting with each other, and we see whether the penis is going to get hard or not again. If the penis gets rigid again, then we'll go and do the other side. The reason is if you do one side compared to two sides, you're going to have less ED rates. But if you do one side and you get these big black clots that come out, and the penis is soft, and you wait three minutes and the penis is still soft, you can stop there. But the same thing as you get with, a, uh, you know, a... a a distal shunt or anything else, the penis will be still swollen. So don't be alarmed if the penis still feels swollen when you're done because it's not gonna soften up completely, but these guys do really well. So again, this is a guy who's had a distal shunt that's failed and the guy still has really ischemic priapism. I don't believe this guy's been tunneled, but he still had a distal shunt and came you know, to, the, to the ER. So uh, this is from uh, Dr. Mori's uh, uh, presentation. Again, you can see penoscrotal incision, very easy to do. Uh, <clears throat> and then you're gonna make small uh, corporotomies. You can make the corporotomies as distal as you want on the penis, so you don't have to be digging down into the, into the, uh, into the scrotum. So make them distal, but more distal than you would do an implant. Single passage with your, uh, with your pediatric uh, uh, metal suction tip, proximally and distally. And here you're gonna see, so you can see on the right corpora, which is the left of your image, you can see the dark blood coming out. And if you look on the right side, there's red blood coming out now from that corporotomy. And then the left side has some blood on it. And now we're gonna do the same thing on the other side. So this is a guy who's had it on one side, continue to, continue to be rigid, even after red blood came back and the other side is done. 
so there was a study that was done. We were lucky to be one of the participating sites. When I say participating sites, our N was one from our institution at mm -hmm. that point. Nevertheless, uh, uh, so Dr. Mori had the, uh, the, the lion's share of patients in this study. This is a video from my friend in Egypt, um, and he has a good video. There's a video on VJPU that I wouldn't recommend that you follow. The reason is they use a really big Hagar dilator to do it, which is counterintuitive to what you want to do. Now, I don't do it that this on the shaft. I do a penoscrotal, but the, the, the reason I kind of want to show this video is you can do this on the shaft as well if you want to, and you don't want to do a penoscrotal incision if you don't want to use a bunch of retractors. So all he's going to do is he's going to go down to the corpora, now, there are things that I agree with this video and things that I don't, but here, essentially, all he's doing is going down. He's going to make a small corporotomy, and you can see the dark blood will start coming out because, again, this is a compartment syndrome with old blood. And then what we're going to do here, and I'm not going to be later, so he's just making this. I don't pass it with a, with a, with the, with scissors in the, the past, and then he's just going to do his pediatric yank hour and just go in. Again, he's doing a lot of shoving in and out, which we don't do, but just give you an idea about how this works. So the study by a doctor, uh, <clears throat> the extended study by Dr. Mori had 25 patients. Uh, there were 27 penoscotal procedures because of some, some repeated <coughs> ones. The mean duration of priapism was 70 hours, so some prolonged. But again, you have to take that 71 hours with a grain of salt because some patients had had, a, uh, had, had uh, aspiration and irrigation and had detumescence and again another erection. 48% of patients with failed shunting prior to penoscotal decompression. Unilateral penoscrotal deep compression had a 20% failure rate. Uh, bilateral had no failure rate. And 60% had spontaneous rectal function adequate for penetration. So again, this is really important. You get six out of 10 guys who still are, have good enough erections after you do this, which you're not gonna get with, with tunneling. Um, and uh, of the patients who needed an implant, there were two of them, and both of the patients had successful implant issues without with placement without issues. And again, you're not violating the distal corpora, so you're not having any risks of extrusion. It might be a little bit more difficult surgery when you start getting your axis into the penoscrotal, but if you've done your, uh, your axis a little bit more distal on the penis, you're not gonna have that problem when you go penoscrotally, or you can even go, if your preference is for an intrapubic implant, you can do that as well. So what I'll conclude is with this picture. If, you, if it were you, would you prefer the picture on the left with a garab, uh, al garab with this big defect in your glance and all the morbidity associated with it, or would you prefer a small incision in your penis and the penoscrotal junction? In our, at, at UCI, we've kind of moved away completely from distal shunting and all our patients, whether they're, whether they're uh, uh, <coughs> if, if they come in and they're uh, within a certain time frame, we'll go straight to penoscrotal decompression as our first option. Uh, so we've kind of moved away from uh, shunting. And a, and a few centers, not a lot, have started doing this. Is there enough data to support this as a first line uh, before distal shunting? There isn't. Um, are you, from a, from a litigious position, from many different aspects, your safest options to follow the guidelines and do a distal shunt plus or minus tunneling if you need to. Uh, but I find that the penoscrotal decompression is less morbid and has a better chance of preserving erectile function, especially that a lot of these guys are pretty young. Thank you. Any questions on that? I think we have about three to four minutes for questions if yeah. anybody has questions. Follow up on that prior discussion. If it's 36, 48 hours, they're in and it's pain control, you could decompress them for pain control reasons, worry about the insurance authorization. If you wanted to do an implant, you haven't distally shunted them, so then you can implant them. That's, that that's, what, that's what I do. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. That's, that's what I do, and if you want to come back for an implant later, it's not really a problem because you don't have to wait that six weeks or what. I would six weeks if the guys had a distal shunt yeah. because I'm worried about the, the corporal integrity at the end. 
but in this situation, you really don't have to worry about corporate integrity. And I don't think you have to go very far to say that that's not even outside the guidelines, because if the guidelines are after 36 hours, you could consider an implant. You are considering it. This is pain control while you're waiting to do the implant. So you're still on your guidelines, in my mind. You know, if I'm being professional, you know, if I'm a, a testifying in a case and somebody asks me if someone who decompressed and followed the guidelines. It's outside the guidelines if it's within 36 hours. Right. If it's outside, if, though, it's, right? if it's within 36 hours, it's outside yeah. guideline. After 36 yes. hours, but after you're fine. 36 yeah, hours, fine. if you're going to consider an implant anyway, that would be a pain control measure, and you'd still be inside yeah. your guidelines that we were Correct. headed toward an implant. And Trinity, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but guidelines are are, are not necessarily you have to follow the guidelines 100 percent in right. terms of from legal perspective. You know, you uh, you know, as long as you're not deviating from the guidelines and something that is considered unsafe or completely outside of any reason, you're, you you can deviate out of out of the guidelines a little bit. Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean the, the guidelines are written in a way that protects everyone in this room. Thank you. I like that. I like that. For my, I, I'm going to go back to my residence and hand them this protocol that after 36 or 48 yeah. hours. So, so I would just say this is, I don't believe this data, number one. It's from one person, individual. I had one patient in it. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and it's not that I don't believe Alan. It has nothing to do with that. I, I, it's, it's a selection bias, guys. This is a selection mm -hmm. bias. These are really very impressive, experienced people that are choosing the appropriate person to do that. As, as you saw in that video, which scared me, I mean, that, that you know, your Again, colleague I, I, from I, And I Egypt. wanted to show it to show yeah. some of the issues that I wouldn't do. I wouldn't yeah. be shoving like I mean, crazy that, that's, that's actually, I would say, dangerous um, in that acute setting. What I mean dangerous is not dangerous. You just risk a perforation, you know, whatever. Um, but but it, you're still doing what we're doing in tunneling in this procedure. I know that a Yankauer, uh, I mean, excuse me, a pediatric, you know, is smaller in theory. That's kind of like what Tom Liu does with the small urethral sound. But you're still destroying tissue with that approach. Well, and and I, there's still I, a I'd actually, I actually don't go all the way up and all the way down. Yeah. I just pass it slowly up, slowly down, and I don't go all the way up. And I just milk it, and you get the big blood clot that comes out. I, I got it. But yeah. in, in the end, an Algarab shunt or any distal shunting, there's a shunt there. We don't close no the shunt. Yeah, there's a fistula. No there's no fistula here. So I don't see how well, it doesn't reaccumulate. Well, I, I, I close the corpora loosely, and I leave a drain for three days afterwards. Yeah. That drain output is really you're high. You're making yeah. a corporoscrotal shunt, basically. Though. Right. You're, That's you're exactly you're not, what you're doing. You're not going to form a corporoscrotal shunt. You have a drain there. You're not going to form a corporoscrotal well, shunt. The shun drain is taking the, the blood. I yeah, actually, if you call it that, then I'm actually okay with this. And then that can be no. your criticism. A CS shunt. I think we have one more yeah, question. Yeah, go ahead, sir. So one of the, one of the uh, 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 concepts of the guidelines seems to be that always do it stepwise, but then there's a certain number of hours where these steps don't work, you know. So do you, you always have to do the aspiration uh, injection, or is there a certain number of hours where you say, it's not going to work. Let's go straight to the OR. Yeah, I'll just make the point. All that you should do as a practicing urologist is document that it's acute ischemic priapism. If you have documented that and you're beyond 36 hours, because that's what the guideline says, you have the ability to proceed with placement of penile prosthesis if you want or do what you've been doing in your practice probably for the last however many years you've been in practice in that stepwise approach. I would argue if someone has 36 hours or plus, if you don't want to place a prosthesis, which to be honest with you, in my practice, have I done it? Of course I've done it, but that wouldn't be the, the, the first line for me for the reasons we've discussed. I then will tell the patient, I'm not going to do a Winters. I'm not going to do a percutaneous. I'm not going to do all the things Martin described very well. 
I'm actually going to go right to operating room, make an incision, do an algorab, tunnel, and then, and then you're going to get a prosthesis in hopefully six to eight weeks. But it also depends, is this, is this guy, his initiation of, you know, priapism, he's come from home straight to you. Because the guy who's been in a community hospital or somewhere and comes to see you and they were attempted aspiration and irrigation, he might have DTMS for about six, 12 hours or something after and then came back up. So, you know, there's a lot more to the story. It can be a little bit loaded sometimes. And then the other issue is you don't know in the community hospital the, how they've aspirated and irrigated him, et cetera. So, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm always tempted to try at least to aspirate and irrigate even if it's late because by the time we can set up everything and discuss what's the harm of trying at least once with your residents, with your team who know what they're doing a little bit maybe more than somewhere else where they don't have much experience. I'm curious as to uh, what uh, you can tell me what the data or your experience is in terms of the risk of distal perforation of an IVC after an algorab or you know, something significant like that, either short-term or long-term, like after six weeks, is it high, is it low? I just want to know. I don't think there's a ton of data on that, unfortunately, but anecdotally, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if, if you're not waiting long enough, you're going you're gonna to grind out. Like even like an algorab removing those tips, is it, is it a year later, do they scar down and then you're fine, or is it like? I'll tell you what I've done in the past, and maybe Jay, you can comment. What I've done in the past, so I, I, I put a lot of pro prostheses in people with neophalluses, right? So when I place in a neophallus, I do a, a little, um, a, a chimney with alloderm at the, at the top of my prosthesis, almost like a, uh, it's not completely coated like Dacron or whatnot that's been described. It's more of a chimney with alloderm. And some patients that I know, for example, I did it myself or I spoke to the person that have had a real excision like Yafi showed on his picture, I will undersize them and I'll place a piece of alloderm to serve as a, as a biologic barrier because it just get, gets engrafted into the, uh, into the tissue. But listen, that's, I, I've, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've done that, but done but it. To, to, to answer your question, I, I think, you know, if, if you're going to go back in there and put an implant in afterwards and there has been an algorithm previously, the corporate do scar down pretty well, you know. And in fact, what you're going to end up trying to do is when you do your distal dilation, you're going to have this, like, one centimeter distal rind of crap yeah. that you just don't push too hard at, you know, because that will provide some rigidity uh, in the, yeah. the midglarence anyway. But if you push harder than that, yeah, you're going to come right out I, the unicorn horn. I, just to add, I mean, I, um, no, the alloderm idea, you know, I, I, I've known of several others that have also done that. And I think, again, in Europe, they've talked about putting even mesh on, as yeah, a distal Dacron. cap. Yeah. You know, a distal cap. I, I have not done mesh. But, but I think because of what Martin just presented or talked about in terms of that, that glandular dissection being challenging, I usually don't hesitate to make a little bit of a distal counter incision yeah, as well. I'm glad you said that. And so, so I've often made a distal counter incision in that type of a case, even if it's a easy dilation or relatively easy dilation. And then I've done a controlled dilation of the distal, of the distal uh, penis. And, and I have not uh, put a cap on it, but I have undersized it and done a distal sort of, you know, controlled dilation through a, a distal corporotomy. Awesome. Or just do a penoscoidal decompression. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm going to do. <laughs> but we so, can, like, do a penoscoidal decompression, and uh, then none of the, like, in our hospital system, they're not going to get an approval for an implant. So they come in, they get shots, they get, like, drainage. Then, if not, then they get a penoscoidal decompression, they get on a vacuum, and they see me in three right. months. And, and I'll just make the comment, the reason why penoscoidal decompression is not in any of the guideline statements is because there's one paper. 
just came out five minutes ago. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah. And so, so, I mean, in the future, I would tell you, like, you know, please be careful with penile scrotal decompression. I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's, it's in the guidelines, it's as a future direction. I would encourage you to attempt it. There's no reason why not to do it. And publish on it. Show your results. Again, I, I think um, we're probably at the end of the course uh, time at this point. I think we, we all want to thank everyone for attending. This is the first year for a Priapism course, the AUA, and we're very hopeful that this type of a course can continue because I do think there's some nuance in sort of management for this type of a, a condition. I think the AUA ordinarily gives you feedback forms for all the courses for you to fill out, and we would encourage you to fill it out with commentary on how we could try to improve this and also let them know if you enjoyed it, please let them know so that they can continue it in future programming. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.